is a world-class bullshitters exclusive. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to 2023 and here on the High Council. I'm your host, Jeff Hicks, and with me tonight is my co-host, Caffeinated Wolf. What is up, my friend? What is going on, brother? Hail to the chat and hail to the High Council. Happy New Year to everybody. It's great to be back. Hell yeah, dude, it's 2023, as we said, folks. It's a new year. We're going to be having all sorts of fun, crazy things happen here on the channel, but tonight... We have a great show for you. And though Caffeinated Wolf and I could have an amazing show on our own, we have some awesome guests to make this show even better. So first off, we've had him on the channel a few times. You know him, you love him. Say hello to Script Doctor PhD. Uh, hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. Happy New Year. I hope you all had a wonderful uh, holiday season, Christmas, uh, Hanukkah. Whatever it is, uh, I hope it was uh, great to you, everyone here on the panel and in the chat. Thanks so much for, for inviting me in today. Up next, we're also joined by uh, another familiar face here on the channel. Uh, he's a fellow comic creator and a fun content creator as well. Say hello to Literature Devil. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me on again. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on, man. It's always fun to uh, hear your take on stuff. And finally, folks, we have one more guest tonight who has been on the channel before in one of our best episodes of the modern version of the High Council. Say hello to WDW Pro. It is another trip around the sun. Happy 2023 to everybody, and what an honor to get to be back. And uh, I'm hearing that this show may be just as good, or at least come close to that one that you just described. It was a lot of fun that night, so let's do it again. Hell yeah, man. Uh, folks, I'm here for the repeat. <laughs> we can do it uh, folks if you haven't heard that one go back into the archives it's the episode right before thanksgiving it was it was an all-time classic uh we got to hang out with butters from south park so you know. who knows he may show up again you never know Ooh. so folks um you know how to uh start the show or sorry excuse me we had to start the show here on the high council we start things a little differently than we do on the wcbs podcast but we always start the show off giving a hail to the audience so first off let's say hi to folks like sh rebels 08 uh carl in the chat we have umo dumi uh mr or sorry miss ninja julian cortanis we also have people like uh, trace xl and Keely Child, John Thomas, and a whole lot more. But like I always say, folks, if we said hi to everyone in the chat in the beginning of the show, well, it'd be good morning pop culture because that'd be all we'd able to be able to do. But folks, be on the lookout for that in the future. We're in 2023. We'll bring it back. We owe you seven episodes. So guys, 2022 is thankfully over. We've had an interesting end of the season. And one thing, we'll use this as a soft opener, uh, that I didn't expect to be talking about is Avatar crossed that billion dollar mark at this point. Uh, did we all see it? I didn't see it. I haven't seen any of the Avatar movies. Good. <laughs> Not even the Airbender variety. <clears throat> Good. Even better. I, I have. I have not. I saw the first Avatar, uh, James Cameron Avatar, in theaters uh, twice. Once with my dad and once with uh, my best friend. And I enjoyed it. I had a good time. Uh, I didn't need a sequel, so I didn't go spend. Three and a half hours of my life going and seeing the sequel. Well, 
if you like Avatar, good news, there's going to be a third one with fire and all this other dumb crap. So, in this economy, we were cons- we were questioning if it would actually do it, cross the line, and to break even. And it, it still hasn't broken even yet, but it keeps breaking records. So, I guess everyone just has really, really low barriers of quality. That or people... And mean, strong that- bladders. Yeah, yeah, and strong bladders. For sure. Well, maybe they're intelligent like me, and they don't get a freaking... 5XL size soft drink like right before they go into a two and a half plus hour movie thinking they're going to be fine and not have to get up and take a leak. I don't know. Oh, come on. Come on now. You you know how to be a movie pro at this point. When you've got a three hour plus movie, you just go straight to the catheter system, right? Get that giant gulp, (laughs) sit down, put your little bucket, your little igloo, your little uh, Yeti on the floor and just hope nobody sits beside you or else they're going to have a bad day. You're not because you're in there for the long run. I think I've been doing movies wrong this whole time. I, I guess. I, just, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm terrified of the person who would do that. So maybe, I'm, maybe I shouldn't say that and put it out into the ether. Maybe, maybe somebody's going to take us up on it. I'm far too much of an in- introvert for that. Like that. <laughs> I don't think I could bring myself to do it. I don't care what movie it is. It they would lower the amount, the number of teenage pregnancies that occur in a movie theater if there were urine <laughs> buckets around. I think, although it might not. They're they're persistent, honestly. That Didn't you see the uh, the whole article where the one guy like died of a heart attack or something during the movie, and it said because because he loved he just loved it so much. Wait, are you talking about for Avatar Way of Water? Yeah, Way really? of Water. <laughs> That's some Kevin Smith shit right there. Where like I was in love with this trailer so much that I cried for eight days that, straight that, after. That's seeing Scrooge. It. That's Scrooge. It's exactly what happens in the movie Scrooge with the uh... the old lady. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh man, only die watching my thing, watching my movie or my my segment. Oh, you can't buy publicity like this. Run it more. Put <laughs> <laughs> this everywhere, every hour on the hour. Like, make, like you can't, like you'll die if you watch this. Like that's that, that was like some real life. And the, and the thing is, the guy who does that, you know, the the main character, he does that because he's evil. That's like how they, that's how they, the one thing they have him do to depict how evil and heartless he is. But here it is happening in real life. Oh, this guy died because he just loved Way of Water so much, or had a heart attack because he just loved it so much. Like it's like to use his uh, his ailment to push the movie. Like, wow, that, that actually happens, huh? Well, you know, you want to be careful when somebody dies. You know, you don't want to make too much light of it. But I, but I do want to make fun of journalists, so that's okay. <laughs> but I, I, sometimes I sometimes I find it humorous to read those types of headlines, and then buried in the last paragraph will be something like. Also, he weighed 600 pounds. And uh. Right. <laughs> Read the fine print. <laughs> and things like that. A line like that at the end is probably buried so far down that it's like, oh, yeah, we can tell he was 600 pounds because he laid down on this line. Isn't that quite a bit? Whenever like, there's a picture missing. It might be better for that as opposed to, and the paramedics rushed to the scene only to stop during the mid-act turn point of the movie to watch and see what happens next before handling the... You know the, the heart attack victims. It's uh, like one of those headlines with the the space. Yeah, I suppose you could like, do worse. Where NASA would say something like, "Meteor will will pass near Earth in you know next month," but then you read the article or whatever, and it said that well, nearby is really like you know ten trillion miles away, <laughs> which is nearby technically speaking in you know spatial terms. Sure. People want those clicks. People Everything want those clicks. <laughs> no, as somebody that watched it. Um, it was just passable. I, I'm surprised it's done as well, but I guess that's the power of James Cameron. So 
yay for those it's people also, who really liked it. It's also it's the power of the international market. I mean, yeah, uh, mostly, you, you yeah. Know, there's uh, there's been a big push out of the the global box office that, you know, we coming from our culture and from our backgrounds, it's really difficult to sometimes prognosticate what the Chinese are going to do because we don't really understand even what's going on inside their country sometimes. And then there's other, there, there are other markets like that and it's overperformed our expectations in those markets. But I think in, in North America, you know, it's doing fine. And, and like you said, I think it's like a seven out of 10, maybe it's a passable story. But then again, some people really love it. I think that comes down to the individuals who enjoy being fully immersed for a long period of time in something creative. Whereas if you are, highly connected with story and, and narrative matters to you most, you're just going to think it's okay. Yeah, that's fair. I think part of it's also we're, we're seeing this uh, boom in the rest of the world where we're seeing more people um, want to go back to movie theaters after they were locked away from it. Now, there's certain movies that, you know, that people just didn't care. You know, <laughs> people went and saw uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. People went and saw... Uh, uh, Top Gun, things like that. But there is something to be said for people having n had not all too many options available to them in terms of having that movie theater experience um, the last couple of years. And so now they're looking for any excuse to see a big blockbuster, uh, though apparently Black Adam didn't fall into that category for them. <laughs> African-American Adam, as we call him here on this channel. Yeah. <laughs> I... That movie, well, put it like this. We'll talk more about certain merchandise things a little later in the stream. And the thing I'm going to talk about performed worse than Black Adam. If you thought Black Adam was the bottom of the barrel for superhero stuff, folks, in 2022, well, you'd, uh, you'll be surprised who actually is the worst. So, guys, let's uh, move on to some of our other topics uh, because we have you know some other things we wanted to cover. Now, Andrew, we have been called cape shit here on this show many different times by ourselves and uh, the audience as well. And so cape shit is our own uh, subline uh, to talk about superhero genre stuff. And today we get to talk about something that's a show that scraped the bottom of the barrel, She-Hulk. So we didn't watch it. We didn't review it. We're not going to watch it or review it. But we are going to talk about the commentary around it. So, Literature Devil, you are a, a comic book writer. You have written successful books, and we both have, and we all have opinions on uh, one writer. His name is Dan Slott. He's responsible for the <laughs> modern day Spider Man and a lot of bad stuff over at Marvel. Um, anyone here not have an opinion on Dan Slott, or at least experience his writing? Quotations. Uh, I have not really experienced his writings. My understanding of him based on his uh, social media presence is that uh, he either wishes or tries to emulate Tom King with his bad takes and poor execution of things. Man, try, imagine trying to be a copy of a bad copy. Right. And, wow. a, and a former it's... Fed on top of that, too. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, that's like you're trying to be a copy of a bad copy of Alan Moore. Like <laughs> Exactly. Wow. <laughs> it's twice removed from greatness. <laughs> like I would say that Tom King's kind of like die the the diet Alan Moore, but he's really like more like if Alan Moore were Coca Cola. Tom King's more like diet like RC Cola or something. You know, like, like some some off brand. Like he's like diet uh, Walmart diet brand. tab. 
Yeah, diet cat. <laughs> oh. like, he's like one of those things. Except some, some, he's a diet version of some drink trying to emulate Coca-Cola. Like, he's a diet version of, a, of an imitation. That's what he feels like. Well, he's the guy that went after the movie Joker and on Twitter. He has bad takes across the board. He likes to engage with fans. And uh, from a creative standpoint, he likes to ruin Spider-Man. But now he's chiming in on She-Hulk. So, yeah, I'm not even going to ask you guys how we feel about She-Hulk. Let's just listen to this, folks, for a minute. And uh, we'll talk about our good friend, Dan Slott. So, Disney Plus She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, is by all metrics a fantastic show and one of the best Phase 4 offerings in the MCU, says the Mary Sue. So, not only is that patently false and provably <laughs> false, but if you're using Phase 4 as the measurement, then that also isn't saying very much. No. But what else do you expect? Well, it's the Mary Sue. We, we also, we know the Nielsen ratings. Like, what, what are they doing? We all know the ratings. We don't have... You're not going to fool us now. This is like looking back retroactively at Roadkill and saying, oh, no, it's a little alive. It was a little alive. It, it reflects <laughs> the actual life of, of the animal. And you're like, no, its guts are all over the road. We saw it. We know its, it's head is about a quarter mile away. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It got stuck to the just, back of the tire. Even taxidermy looks more alive than this. All right. <laughs> you know, now, She-Hulk... Speaking of alive, does not look alive. She-Hulk lives in that uncanny valley where we we know it's CGI, but we know it's trying to be lifelike and real, and it's 100% uncomfortable to look at. And one of the most famous, and dare I say iconic moments, yeah, of She-Hulk, is when She-Hulk started to twerk. Uh. And for those <laughs> out there who saw the clip, I'm sorry. For those hoping I'm going to show the clip, you're lucky I'm not. But... It was one scene that a lot of people had comments on. And for some, it was a bad scene that we like to make fun of, like we did on the WCVS show. And for some, it became a political stance. And that's exactly what Marvel writer Dan Slott did on Twitter this weekend. So he said, anyone saying that the She-Hulk TV show wasn't comic book accurate, um, it, uh, he's just complaining about the accuracy. But he goes on to talk about how the scene in... She-Hulk, the twerking, isn't a big deal because somehow nobody has a problem with Tony Stark having a stripper pole in his private jet in Iron Man 1 with women. Yeah, so it's Tony Stark. <laughs> Tony Stark didn't use the stripper pole in Iron Man 1. Yeah, that um, was also a very Tony Stark thing. Yeah. What was his point exactly? Like, like people don't like the twerking of She-Hulk, but they like the strippers. So they're horny for women. And the, the well, single horny for women in, in this Iron Man, is, they're not no longer horny for She-Hulk? What exactly was his point? I don't know, I don't, but it's know. clearly someone who doesn't understand the concept of, like, sex appeal and sexiness. Like, stripping, regardless of the actual removing of clothes, requires dancing and movement of body in a seductive manner to entice the audience. Twerking doesn't do any of that. It is blatant. It is without effort uh, or even... Um, a form of uh, conveying seduction. It's just here it is. Here it's shaking. You're welcome. Yeah, um, right. It's an you're emulation dry of a sex the act. Well, the, the, so, I think the real reason why everyone was so angry with the twerking was not because of the twerking itself. It was just the writers being incredibly arrogant and having She-Hulk twerk as like kind of like a victory dance, like ha take like like a like an annoying little sister who stole your toys. And is now like kind of bragging about how you can do nothing because that you know daddy already said you she's allowed to play with your toys. 
And so yeah, just doing like a victory dance of, over your tears. It's yeah, kind of weird. Your little sister so grabs your Jed. Joe and says he's leaving the army to go be a, a, an insurance salesman for my Barbie. Yeah, and then you're like, Dad, she took my still my toy, and then their dad goes, let her play with it, son. And then she just you know sticks her tongue out and brags about how you can do nothing as she plays with your toys. That's kind of what the twerking was supposed to be, metaphorically. So there's two things about this that really you just have to question the intelligence behind the argument that's being made. There's two points here that, that are just so simple. Point number one is that we watched Tony Stark go from uh, the place that he was, right with the stripper pole, and all that, that sort of thing where he was uh, polyamorous and he was all about the ladies, a real ladies man. And the entire arc that he had for a decade, we watched this, right? The, the, and what gripped us as an audience and made us love that character is that it took a very long time and it was well earned that he discovered the importance and the meaning of family, of investing in a single person above all others. He became someone who was altruistic in the end and put others above himself and he, he finally had a family. And that was the arc we followed and that was meaningful to enough people all over the world that we all followed this and cared beyond it just being Michael Bay's Transformers, right? Because it could be that. It could be just Robot Man in Robot Suit. Turbo Man is flying around and, and shooting things. But it's not. We all cared about Tony Stark. And when Tony Stark, spoiler for everybody who's been, uh, you know, not around for a few years, when Tony Stark was taken out of existence in the MCU, until he's not, um, it had meaning to all of us, okay? So the difference in that and what She-Hulk is doing is that Tony, Hark, Tony Stark's starts that's a that's a tongue twister starts in a spot we'll keep it going starts in a spot where she hulk winds up at okay so she hulk is glorifying the thing that tony stark left that we all identified okay he's leaving that place and he's going somewhere better and she hulk is in that place and she stays there and it's glorified the second point about this is that the thing about she hulk is she, in one point in the series, wants to make sure that everybody knows women are not to be objectified. That's the, it's a big thing, right? The whole first episode is about how people objectify women. Men objectify women and they mistreat women. And women should not be simple sex objects. Okay, fair enough. Good point. The first episode was still crap, but good point there. And then what do we do? We go to twerking. Why? Because she doesn't even believe it because the characters cannot be consistent. And if there's one way you want to drive away audiences, try being inconsistent. That the whole series is inconsistent. The story is inconsistent. The graphics are inconsistent. The CGI is inconsistent. It's it is just a it is a barrel full of monkeys of crap. And to even to even go back and defend this thing, number one, you have to be stupid to do it, or paid. Maybe you're paid, well, but you have to be stupid, stupid because it's already buried and gone. The the this show on Nielsen, it peaked out at four hundred and something minutes. Uh, 400 million minutes watched, okay? And sometimes it got 300 million minutes watched. We're, we're talking about a show that gets like a third or a fourth of what the really popular shows that actually matter get. So this is this is some kind of returning to some zombie that never mattered in the first place. But the but the political message behind it all. <laughs> no, I dude, I, I'm 100% with you guys. I, I just find it funny that, and really off the mark because I you know I'd love to respond to Dan Slot on Twitter personally but you know as you saw we're blocked from that guy we've never said anything to him it's not like we've ever even tagged him in a post remember when everybody would just do the mass blocking because they couldn't handle uh, a differing opinion even though you, they didn't know you exist well that's what happened with us and Dan Slot. 
But now you've made me curious. I've got to go check for myself. Yeah, yeah pretty much everyone's been blocked on. by the guy. I, I've been blocked by him for years. I got yeah, chain like blocked. <laughs> it's a badge of honor at this point, dude. Uh, folks, if you've been blocked by Dan Slot, let us know in the chat by pressing the number one. It'll be I am now a bonding moment. The, I am now the secret spy for the Dan Slot Twitter account. He has not yet noticed me. If you need any information, well, <laughs> nope, I'm reading it right now. It is not worth reporting on. This is just stupid. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry yeah, exactly. Folks. Exactly. It doesn't really matter if you're blocked or not. Like, he doesn't really say anything of substance anyway. It's just generic copy paste. You know, I hate Trump. Hate Republicans. Hate anything that he's supposed. The corporation told him to hate. <laughs> well, he's been granted uh, permission to hate and that sort of thing. He doesn't oh. really say anything of any substance or consequence. So being blocked by the guy isn't really a big deal. <laughs> uh, this kind of spared his nonsense, I guess. Yeah, because you want to be able to sleep at night now. I was so concerned I had done something wrong, but I'm, I'm not worried anymore. It's so funny when these artists either. Uh, you know, manually choose to block you because you said something that they didn't like or criticize somebody that they liked or they have you, you know, chain blocked because you happen to follow or interact with somebody that they don't like, whatever the combination thereof is. It's so sad. Like, all you have to do is shut up and create. Like, Dan Slott has created a lot of bad comics, He's also created a few really good comics. His run in Amazing Spider-Man ranges from what the hell was this to oh, that was pretty fun. So there's there's also a sweet spot in there where it's like, okay, this is actually readable at the very least. I, I and, and it's got great art because he teamed up with, with one of my favorite Spider-Man artists, interior artists of all time, quite frequently, Umberto Ramos. Um and so I always appreciate looking at his artwork. And he worked with Dan Slott quite a bit. He has enough stories to where it's like, if you just don't be a jackass to people on social media, you just shut up and you write. And please like stick with more of like the good writing instead of whatever the hell that was. Um, people just buy your book. Like, it... And dude, you're we're in a place right now in the comic book industry where it is really really quickly hurtling towards the edge of a cliff we are seeing more and more indie publishers tank entirely more and more comic book shops going under and eventually the fact that dc and marvel are owned by these mega corporations isn't going to be enough to sustain them because they can only be subsidized through the actually profitable um parts of these mega corporations portfolio for so long and at some point if they don't start turning their shit around and turn a profit they're just gonna get tossed out as well and disney will be like i bet we're putting the whole bitch up for sale somebody else can this could be somebody else's problem right and a lot of people are gonna be without jobs and whose fault is that their own they just just create good comics. This dude is back on Amazing Spider-Man after uh, oh, a handful no. of years. Yeah, he's he's back on Amazing Spider-Man with uh, Mark Bagley, I think. So the artist from Ultimate Spider-Man, um, which he's great. Like, yeah, no, he he's not one of my favorites, but I like him. And if if he just like stayed in that sweet spot of like readable to this was pretty fun, and not any of the other stuff, like the 
they could do gangbusters with at least that book, right? They shoot themselves in the foot so freaking often in this industry. I do not understand it. Well, just looking at his Twitter account, he kind of gives me Pablo Hidalgo vibes. I don't know if anybody else has that as well, but he just kind of, I don't what, get fat and obnoxious? <laughs> yes, that, that and driving away your potential consumers. I don't understand the strategy in that. I don't understand uh, pushing away people who would like to like you if only you were likable. I think you just mentioned that one of the another big pro- another one of the one of the big problems in the American comic book industry is that if as many of uh, horrible things that Dan Slott's created along with alongside as a coworkers like a bunch of other creators who are that kind of like major stars or major talking names in the industry who cannot write or sell a comic book to save their lives this is some cases literal is that they keep they keep getting work these people will, will these people the, the industry will have these people go in and they will be given a job and they'll be given in a, a comic book to write a character to write for and and then it sells like nothing and so they cancel it and so they and then but they don't fire them they don't say okay you're out of here they keep giving these these certain individuals new jobs for some reason like gail simone used to get used to get a lot of these magnesaji used to get a lot of these uh, for some reason used to and so like well now they're now they've moved on to being editors at yeah. publishers that are going under <laughs> like they really they rewarded you for some reason like they kept giving them work and jobs when you know if they actually went off of merit they would have fired these people a long time ago but they didn't they just kept them in the industry and kept giving them work for some reason and now they're they are where they are and the, and then also the, at the same time they kept pushing out actually talented creators who had ambition and enthusiasm and kept and kept out like they built as much as they hated the wall the 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 american comic book industry has built effectively a wall around themselves they do not like new blood in their mainstream they do they do not i read a book that was written by one of these professionals i think it was like uh Cassata or something like that where he mentions oh, that that's the american a dirty comic, name around here yeah I, I think i think so but like he he wrote this book and he kind of mentioned it i think it was Cassata. Where he mentioned that getting into the comic, book, the American comic book industry is like breaking out of prison. The moment you break into it, that everyone will gather around and find out how you did it to make sure no one else can do it again. <laughs> like they really run on nepotism, and they really hate new blood being introduced into the system. That's what it's going to take to save it. Yeah, flat, flat you gotta, out. Got to get rid of all of the the talentless uh, ideologues masquerading as creatives and have people that actually give a damn. And that's why I go back to that statement about Disney and Warner eventually need to reach a place where they just sell off the whole publishing division. It's like, nope, not somebody else's problem now. So the only person that's going to really want to buy that is somebody that actually wants to do something with that. So get somebody that's a fan who can hire people that are fans, that have talent, know what the heck they're doing, and then you know what you do? You make money. I just, I pulled up this new book from Dan Slott and Mark Bagley, the book titled Spider-Man, and it's just more Spider-Verse crap. And that's yeah. that's something I hate about modern books. It's like, let's, anything actually in entertainment. Uh, this new Flash movie was going to have this. It's like, hey, you guys like mm. Spider-Man. Well, hey, dog, we know you like Spider-Man, so we give you Spider-Man with your Spider-Man on the side of Spider-Man. These pages are just five different versions of the same characters jumping through portals, fighting each other. It's the same old shit. Like, this is the most boring trope in comic books. And, like, look, 
heroes fighting heroes is nothing new. It goes back to the first issue of the Avengers. I mean, hell, the movie accurately depicted how they fought each other. I like that kind of stuff. But we're also at a point where we don't even have villains anymore. It's just like, hey, we're going to make darker versions of the heroes to fight each other. And it's just one big story about uh, self-discovery or a way to sell more toys without having to, you know, break up case assortments. It's like, all right, after a minute, like, this gets really old and tiresome. And Dan Slott's been doing that for years. That's his brand. His brand is just to give you the same crap you've liked before, just repackaged. And that's it. And he then he speaks with this sense of authority and arrogance, like he's something that guy is the epitome of what's wrong with the copy like he goes to prove that the comic book nerd never really dies he just gets bigger and older and sometimes gets a job but he's still the big douchebag he always has been and that's <laughs> that's my whole takeaway from him and everybody involved in uh, modern marvel they just they're like the nerd that got power but they never got the chip off their shoulder and now so they're like worse the to the comic, fans so like comic book guy from the simpsons that's dan slot a hundred percent worst guy ever. So that's you know, what I you, think uh, you were talking about the villain issue. And I think that's, that's uh, extremely poignant because I was talking with somebody in the toy industry and this individual was explaining to me that when you have any franchise and, and we know that comic books birth franchises, or at least they used to, um, when you don't have a villain and, and particularly a strong villain, then the the companies that deal in franchise building and specifically in toys they look at not having a villain as meaning that a franchise has a very limited amount of time that it'll it, it will be strong or uh, be at the peak of its its apex and the reason for that is because whenever you have a property say spider-man or batman or what have you kids role play and as they role play, especially little boys with the action figures, they need a villain to overcome. And so this, this individual I was talking with was saying, you know, when the original Star Wars prequel movie, uh, Phantom Menace, came out, they had ordered a ton or they had, they had prepared to build a ton of Jar Jar toys. And we can all look back at that and kind of laugh. But strategically, they made the decision as they were getting ready to, to launch all of this merchandise that they had to focus on Darth Maul far more or else they were going to lose what they call the play pattern. And I think that play pattern continues on. And I think that if you if you just do what these companies are doing now, which is, oh, well, Spider-Man sells, so let's make 100 different Spider-Men. You know, that can work as a gimmick, but it, it can't work long-term because you have to have something for the character to overcome or else you don't have meaning. And if you don't have meaning, then you don't have market. Bingo. Now, Pro, I've been out in the field. I just got back uh, home today, but I've been around the country, folks, and I got new footage uh, and stuff from retail, which confirms what you guys report over on that park place in terms of Marvel, Star Wars, Disney brands across the board. And that's going to be coming, well, put it like this, folks. It's enough footage for four videos, so it's not going to be the next four videos from the channel, but over the next week or so, you're going to see a lot of change and this is post christmas where things are supposed to be a certain way and uh well it's not and it doesn't favor the old disney brand in any way whatsoever so be on the lookout yeah for that, so, and... so okay. i've got a contact at, at walmart who had uh sent us some information about which which brands and which franchises did well over the holidays the one that disney did actually uh hit a home run with was Encanto. 
kids, little girls are buying up Encanto like crazy. But I bet it would be a lot of fun. I'll send you the list of the, the franchises and the brands that didn't do well. And I bet it's going to match up with some of the things that you found out there that you're going to be sharing later. I won't, I won't talk about it because I don't want to spoil anything, but I bet we would match up pretty well. Dude, I'm excited to see uh, that and talk about that with you off air as well. Um, the one thing I'd like to say real quick is Disney was great with girl franchises, female-focused stuff, and they were making bucks. Like, when it was the Disney Princess brand in the early 2000s, who gave a shit if you were, like, I didn't even, I've never touched a single Disney Princess property uh, piece of merchandise, but I was aware of it. It was just, like, a thing. There was a window of time where Disney princesses came back, or they had other things, like High School Musical. Like, they really knew how to market towards that portion of the audience. And as we've said here in the past, they bought up Marvel and Star Wars to appeal to boys, but they keep wanting to change it to make it more like the Disney princess brand, because that's been making them money, I guess. And so, you know, everything's now been antithetical. But still, I'm glad that Encanto and other things that seem a little more uh, female-oriented, you know, that's their, that's their cup of tea. Well, Hopefully they stop Well, let me ask to... you this, mm-hmm. because sometimes I assume that everybody knows the stuff that I know, and, and I've talked about it, you know, in, in different avenues, but let me just put it out there, and, and maybe it, you know, brings about a one-minute conversation or more, who knows, but are you all aware that the entire reason for the Star Wars sequel trilogy, and this really kicked off everything, but the entire reason for that having Rey as the lead actor, actress, um, was because originally when this thing was getting off the ground, Kathleen Kennedy went to Bob Iger and essentially made a merchandising pitch to him and said, Star Wars merchandise is red hot with little boys. It's going to stay hot with, with men. However, if we lead with a female character, we can bring in the female side of the marketplace and we can make it equally as hot on that side. And so their plan was that they could have little boys playing with Ray, but they could also have the little girls who play with Barbies and, and with little, uh, you know, the dolls, they would be playing with Ray too. And therefore they could double or come close, approximate double the Star Wars merchandising revenues that were anticipated. And Iger bought into that. Kennedy made that pitch. Iger bought into it. And that really was one of the beginning points of where Iger lost trust in Kennedy and why the two up until this day really don't like each other and, and don't, uh, mingle at all. Well, it was, it, because it goes back to this this idea that people in people in HR, people in all sorts of places in these these big corporations seem to be getting the wrong information or fed the wrong information that somehow uh, boys and girls are the same. They're not. They don't. They don't. They don't play the same they don't interact the same they're typically not into the same things the girls that are into the things that boys are into are already into them and they're into them as they already are um, wait, you, wait, you don't I, need to change I, anything as i keep saying that the boys and men are into physical conflicts women tend to like social conflicts and this is provable by what they tend to enjoy and consume there's a reason the reason why little boys and men like star wars because it wasn't full of sword fights and dog fights and it's full of cool shootouts and everything with you know Harrison Ford, Han Solo, and they got the dogfights in in space. That's usually what men and boys like. Now what now what are the, what's what do girls and women tend to like? They tend to like romances. They tend to like a uh, deviant sex stuff, oddly enough. And they they tend to they tend to like a uh, social conflict as much as the feminists hate the whole thing about social expectation, all these things you know heaped on women's backs and and social issues and everything. Uh, they really do still enjoy that Elizabeth Bronte era, you know that that uh, 
the era of social expectation. You know, there's um, I must marry above my station or whatever. I, I must I, I must not marry below my station. I must uh, keep to my family's name. You know, that's the tradition and everything. They love that stuff, even though they hate that stuff. <laughs> that's where they like to read stories in. That's in when they read, you know, uh, fantasy. They when they read uh, historical stuff, it's usually you know the romance between the nobles and all the scandalous crap like they got into. That's what they like. And uh, what even in the past, when they pumped out an action movie, what did they add in there to attract the women? More gunfights? No. They added in a romance section. It's not even the fact that they threw in a, a female character. They, it had to be romance-oriented because that's what women are, women are they tend to be into. In fact, even with the uh, the whole idea of some women being into things that men are into, they tend to like it for different reasons. Like they might like superheroes because the superhero, the, the man is masculine and awesome. Necessarily for the fighting, but because the masculine man is masculine. The hero is awesome. It's Batman. He's handsome. He's a handsome billionaire genius. I mean, come on. Um, and also the the thrilling back and forth with Catwoman and how 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 a deviant that is because she's a criminal. He is this this awesome superhero with with morals and and they can never be together and there's friction there that sort of thing. That's what they like. Then it's provable, and you can see that in Twilight, Fifty Shades of Grey, all the stuff that women like. It's not there's no like fighting in there. And I said before, with Disney, Disney made its brand off of marketing movies to little girls. Now there the, a lot of the movies are so good. Anyone can like them, but if you take a look at the movies that they that they you know built their brand off of, you know Snow White, romance, you know the the idea of the prince waking her up from the deathly sleep, uh, even things that are more physical like Beauty and the Beast, where you have a beast and you know he fights Gaston. What are they fighting over? Fighting over Belle, <laughs> which is another female fantasy, uh, the power fantasy that tends to make their way into female-oriented media, and also. Oh. It's Love mostly... triangles are very popular with women. Absolutely, they are. Absolutely, because well, you see all the young adult fiction stuff do that. Was it's it? always uh, yeah. Twilight did that. Always you know, love you triangles. Your vampire diaries, everything that that falls into that young adult uh, and you know, kind of more female centric fiction always has some sort of a love triangle absolutely always. but absolutely. i can absolutely. use something that's a little bit more recent that I, I think kathleen kennedy and co at disney probably used as an initial framework to uh to help market uh, or try to market in both sectors of boys and girls and that would be toy story and specifically toy story 2 with the introduction of jesse played by joan cusack uh i remember as a kid a lot of girls like that jesse doll um and like that movie toy story a lot more than than they like the first one and i i can totally see them that was one of the few films you know animated by pixar distributed by disney where it didn't matter if you were a boy or a girl you dug it and you could they, like, like the fact that jesse was kind of also introduced as the so somewhat love interest to buzz lightyear because woody had uh bo peep right or yeah he had bo mm -hmm. peep and I can totally see that would be part of the of the argument it by way of to Bob Argyre saying, listen, we kind of did this with Toy Story in the 90s. We can do it with Star Wars. But the problem is, is that Toy Story was a fluke because of the well writing and, and the way that they presented the, the things through Disney. However, Disney itself overall has only ever been a company that markets to girls. That's all they know how to sell. They didn't do any research to understand boys other than the fact that they liked something. And they well, could That's why have. they bought Star Wars in the first place, was exactly. to have that's why they a strong Marvel and male Star franchise. Wars in the first yeah. place. Absolutely. And then, okay, so to think about this. So you've got, you, you've got Disney, 
which by 2017 had realized that this was a failed economic theory that you could convince little girls to purchase action figures and to reproduce a play pattern that is the same as little boys. This, this, this had failed, right? Despite their beliefs on, on gender theory and play and all that, this had failed. So by 2017, they know that. And yet still, still, they took the MCU, which is their golden goose, and especially now that their animation is, is you know, turned into a flop factory, but they took their golden goose in the MCU and they began to do the exact same thing and rather than create female heroes who fit into the female hero archetype of which that exists, they began to pigeonhole, they began to shoehorn these characters into the male hero archetype, which doesn't work then. But not only that, they put these female characters into like what we're talking about with Spider-Man again, where you've got 100 Spider-Men. Rather than create unique and original characters, they began to create alternate versions of the male characters so that the female characters and the minority characters no longer were given unique personalities and unique origins and unique stories, but rather were giving, given hand-me-down roles, which I think is inappropriate and improper and unbecoming, but they gave them hand-me-down roles where now you have, oh, well, this is, this is the alternate version of Captain America. He has a different skin color. Oh, well, this is a female version of, you know, and you, you can keep going with this. But they attempted the exact same failed strategy again, and look what it's done to the MCU. This doesn't work. It, it doesn't, because essentially what they're doing, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, by way of they're trying to retain the brand that has been around for decades and was popular and insert something new that they know how to sell or think they know how to sell into that brand so they can um, create essentially a new entity that they don't have to pay out any type of rights to with regards to previous contracts from the IPs that were uh, under the the old regime prior to Disney's acquisition. So they want to keep doing Iron Man, but they're like, oh, we really would like if we could get a female version of Iron Man. And on top of that, we don't have to exactly pay the estates of, uh, you know, Stanley and co that helped make Iron Man if we just do a tweak here give us a, another character, call it a legacy hand-me-down, hand essentially. It's, it's essentially a form of like Batman Beyonding, which, I mean, I, I dig Batman Beyond, but in my opinion, just like Miles Morales is Miles Morales, Bruce Wayne is Batman, Terry McGinnis is Terry McGinnis. Sorry, not sorry. Um, but that's kind of what they're trying to do. They're trying to just, they're trying to create every character as, as a mantle and a legacy character. And because they, they're doing the bare minimum, they're doing literally the panic mode of, Oh my God, we are selling so much Iron Man, but we're losing so much money on Iron Man because some of the profits have to go to the estates. How can we keep on selling Iron Man at the rate we want, but keep all the profits? Okay, let's make her a girl and that's, and just do it that way and do it as easy and quickly as possible just so that we can start raking in that extra money on sales and comic books, sales and movies, sales and toys. But the audience is smarter than that. They know when they're being hoodwinked. Yeah, part of it, part of it's that licensing bit. Exactly right. We we saw this um, when DC did their uh, reboot back in 2010 with New 52, and they completely changed Superman. They did this because there was a uh, a financial dispute, and they, it, there was an issue with the licensing and the rights of the character. And the other reason why they do it is just out of sheer laziness. Uh, Pro mentioned that it, it's just a, a hand-me-down. Here, here you go. Here's a sloppy seconds. It's exactly that. 
they're right. They don't want to call it that though. They they yeah. want to make oh, it be absolutely. oh, this is the first woman ever to be starring and da, 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 da. and you're like no no no, you gave her a hand me down. Yeah, that's exactly. inappropriate. That and you need to call them out that way. Yeah, it's and it's it's not interesting. It doesn't make for a good character. It doesn't make for good stories because more often than not, they do they don't do anything different with these characters. They're literally just reskinning the character. They're just trying to capitalize off of the already established branding that they know sells because it has that notoriety, it has that history. But the fact of the matter is, fans know that that branding is tied to the character, not just the suit, not just the powers. That's why Clark Kent is Superman, Peter Parker is Spider-Man, Bruce Wayne is Batman. Yes, I also love Batman Beyond. I grew up with that. That was my shit. But Bruce Wayne is Batman. There are characters where legacy and and mantle, the concept of a mantle, actually applies. But it's, in truth, very few characters where that actually applies. It's usually written right into their lore. You you look at something. Yeah, you're right. It's more rarity that it works as opposed to it being applied because it objectively it could be applied, but to make it work, that's the trick. That's where the creativity comes in. That's where you're like, oh, this is a brand new character, very different origin, very different background. Um, but they've crossed paths to share something with the, the mentor, the would be mentor character that they'd be taking the mantle from, but they wouldn't be taking the mantle. It would be offered to them and and because they earned it. That's that's different. And that's a difficult story to to navigate, especially with um, the franchises that we've had. Like it, it'd literally be like saying to to the Greeks at the peak of the stories of Hercules. OK, we're going to bring in another character who's going to take the powers of Hercules because Hercules wants to settle down and have children. Like it, it's going to be very difficult to pull that off. There's a reason why that didn't actually happen in, in the historical lore of the, of the character. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to see the greatest character ever sent with Loki in the latest Disney Plus Loki series? Introducing Girl Loki. And if you've not had enough of that, you've seen Thor overcome many things, but have you seen him try to take on Girl Thor? I mean, it just gets old, right? And and here's the other thing, too. To bring it full circle, you got She-Hulk, right? The problem with She-Hulk is when you bring in this, this uh, female character and you make her in the uh, shadow of the male hero archetype, not only do you get the uh, narcissism of that character, but also because women can't have flaws as produced by Hollywood in a realistic way, whereas male characters can, right? Tony Stark can have problems, yeah. but uh, what's her name? Uh, Jennifer Walters. That's her name in, in She-Hulk. Jennifer, Jennifer Walters, Walters can't just have... bad taste in men. That's that's her flaw. Right, she that can't... That's, not that's right. Well, that's actually the fault of the men, though. And so... What you get instead is, whereas Tony Stark, we find out, oh, well, you know, being being promiscuous and making that be the uh, the object of your aim in life is not as mer- meritorious as being someone in a family and, and caring about your child and your wife. With Jennifer Walters, we can't say that because that would mean she's flawed. And so the Hollywood writers then have to make that be okay. And that, and that becomes this thing where you're like, I really don't like her by the end of the series. You're like, I don't see anything that I would root for her. I, I hope the villain wins. Well, the stupid looking villains, I hope they win. <laughs> That's the, exactly the the feeling I get. I really hope the the villains win like every single one of these scenarios. But the thing is that they also uh, have, there's also this weird trend going on that not only can they not have real problems, that the problems they do have 
they're kind of like handled like, handled like children's movies. Like the, the conflicts they encounter, if they encounter conflicts at all. Or the problems are superficial as they, hell. They, they, yeah, they, they, they're superficial and they tend to be easily resolved. Like way easier than they should be, especially given the premise and the uh, what they're, what we're told, how realistic these, these shows and movies are. Like, for example, everyone knows the classic, I bypassed the compressor. Like it's, she doesn't have to, like Ray didn't have to figure anything out. She didn't have to use her genius to figure out the you know something and and you know ramp up the stakes by saying oh there's I'm not really sure about this but I'm pretty sure this will work. No, she just boom does it instantly resolved. We're gonna blow up instantly resolved. Okay, so uh, turning red, she uh, which I'm trying to write the script of right now, a review of, is that uh, she she uh, the main character just blatantly backstabs her friends, blames them all for all of her own wrongdoing, and how is that issue resolved? She says she's sorry. <laughs> that's it game over well, they, inst- they they hug and boom boom done how did, the entire premise of the movie is that her, her she's turning into a red panda and it's a huge issue apparently and that's supposed to be this this conquering issue that's going to plague her throughout the movie by the time we get 20 minutes 20 30 minutes into the movie like a quarter of the way of the movie problem is all the panda is no longer really an issue and why is, what does it take what does it take for her to be comfortable with uh securing the panda controlling her transformation her friends came by and they sang a song together. Well, yeah, let's not forget. Truly inspiring. No, let's not forget Turning to make Red. Money to buy tickets to a boy band. I mean, I, I saw Turning Red. It, what was shocking about it is the fact that um, uh, at the time that it takes place, uh, it does capture women in Southern Ontario, like high school girls in Southern Ontario, like almost immaculately so, where they actually <laughs> do have that thing where they blow up at each other, then they say they're sorry and they're all friends magically again. And you're like, that's how, how does that work? Why, why can't that work when I do that <laughs> with girls? Like it just, it, it was creepy, but it's, it's such a, it was a very superficial film and very the, there weren't, the problems were not, again, the problems were not real. Like they, they, they tried, you can tell it they're tried. They just didn't understand what it was they were trying to accomplish. Yeah. And the thing Mark. is, even if that were an accurate depiction of how they acted, that's we're watching a movie. We yeah. we what we need to have meaning and arcs and things, or else there is no and meaning at all. And consequences, yeah. especially the consequences. But there's very very few consequences in Turning Red. Like, what does she get for having low grades? No consequences. She her mother gets mad at her friends, and that's kind of about it. And and again, this like Turning Red also has this weird trend that that is shared with Encanto, that is shared with uh, even Cora. Legend of Korra is where in in Last Jedi is where you have a female um, student, and then you have a mentor, and you know the Turning Red has her mother, and uh, in Kanto you have the grandma, and Last Jedi you have of course Luke Skywalker, and so on and so on. And it's it, generational it's, envy. It what's supposed to be that the student is supposed to be arrogant or have some sort of flaw that they overcome at the end of the movie. That's supposed to be right. that. You have Daniel Son from like you know uh, Karate Kid. He he goes through all that. But the thing is. You in the in the trend of modern day social justice, whatever, it it's always like the character, the main character is already awesome, and the mentor has to learn a new lesson. You know, Luke Skywalker had to learn that you know yep. the, the failure the best teacher is. The the grandma in Encanto had to learn that she was wrong. That's the main character taught the grandma that she was wrong in Encanto. The mom had to learn that she was wrong in red and turning red. And Tenzin had to learn that oh he was mistaken. And that he had to learn, he has much to learn from Korra. Like it's always the the student teaching the mentor rather than the mentor teaching the student. It's a weird 
it's a weird trend that they have. It really feels it's, like a so rebellious I have, high school girl. I have thing. to get I in on this one because sure. that's you you've got it nailed and i have to get it on to, to, because that's such a great point absolutely what you have what you have identified is postmodernism playing out in the script mm-hmm. over and over and over and you've identified the pattern and it it is purposeful because that that pattern continues to be woven through these new media pieces and the what's what's happening there is that in the past for eons right thousands of years we've done this where you have the mentor who teaches the uh, let's say the innocent or the naive so that they can overcome the challenge that they face. And what postmodern uh, scripting does is it inverts that. And what it says is that because there is no truth that is objective, like my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth and all of it's ambiguous, it is whatever you want it to be. The reality is however you perceive it. Because of that, there is no value in wisdom. And therefore, your mentor does not have anything to give you but you have something to give them. And you can, you can see that crystal clear in Turning Red because Turning Red, in my opinion, is morally reprehensible and logically reprehensible because we agreed. Who, who is the villain in Turning Red? The villain is the mother. The mother. And the reason, yep. the way that you know that the mother is the villain is because she is defeated by the little 13-year-old girl twerking at her if everybody remembers that she twerks oh, yeah. at and the this mother unfortunately yeah dude. and that's what causes the defeat okay so bringing it back again to she hulk right this twerking thing is a big deal because what is it it's sexual freedom it's them emulating a sex act in in the open and so that's again back to this this gender theory idea now we could sit here and we could we could dump on all of these female characters and this terrible postmodernism that's that's infecting all this and we could go ad nauseum but before we do, and I'm fine with that because it's great, because it needs to be called out and we need to identify it clearly and, and with specificity. But before we do, we need to also identify that there are times that, and, and they're, not as, they're not as often, that these Marvel characters or these Disney characters are represented in the appropriate female hero archetype style. And, when, and I'm going to bring up two examples of that, that I think we can all agree probably that we like. You know, personal tastes are different, but here, here's what I'm going to say. I think that Gamora and Nebula were handled wonderfully and the sister relationship that they have was handled wonderfully and the issues that they had by being parented poorly by a bad father was handled Each wonderfully. Each of which that they want to please. That's the other part that, too. There's that's exactly right. And they fit triangle. into a female, female hero archetype and it works. I mean, so if, if you're curious why people are still excited to go see Guardians of the Galaxy 3, even after all of the crap that we have seen through the MCU, I think it's because, for whatever the flaws are of James Gunn, and I'm sure he has some, he managed to handle the male and the female characters in, in a way that still connects with audiences. Great points, though, earlier. on You, you identified it 100%. Well, it goes one more those. step further. It, it goes one more step further because... Um, anyone that has been a teacher or even has read great stories of mentorship or parents, they know that um, a good mentor learns something a little bit about themselves by how they teach or how they experience teaching the student. Like, and that's what the postmodernism preys upon. They take that that concept of, oh, um, this guy, the the wise man, can learn from the child that they're mentoring because the child is going to have you know a new perspective and new questions to ask. But they instead of um, they, they ignore the fact that the mentor is still in the teaching position. Even though they're learning, it's not their 
they're learning at at the feet of the child they're learning at the feet of their own wisdom they're like oh i know this to be true and i know these lessons are important this my student has now given me a different perspective of it how do i take that perspective and and modify what i know so that they can understand the lesson based on their limited experience as well like that's the the concept of where the student uh, the teacher can learn a little bit from the student but on the postmodernism side of things it's like nope it's it's not about the lessons that the 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 mentor already has it's about the fact that like you said literature literature i can't speak uh, it says that ah, um, somebody else has a name that is not being pronounced easily ha ha finally <laughs> usually people stumble over my name they're like pro yeah of course you're taking it um but yeah, to your point, it's basically they they just take the the first half of that that concept so that they can expand and and try and justify the fact that uh, you're old, you're caught in your old ways, your old ways are antiquated, they don't fit with the new world these days. The next generation will lead us, regardless of your wisdom and input. Uh, so you have to conform to uh, what's around the, on the horizon, as opposed to the horizon kind of informing you the value of what it means for the sun to set and then rise again, that type of stuff. That is that that is what the postmodernism, well, one of many aspects of what postmodernism does to try and just dis destroy, um, you know, the, the concept of, of the mentor and uh, the student or the pupil. And you also have been getting that also on the complex side of things. Tom King has been destroying Batman. Uh, for for years, Dan Slott is just destroying his reputation and messing around mm -hmm. with repurposing his his villains to to either possess superheroes or for the superheroes to possess the traits of the villains. Um, and he's able to get away with that a little bit more on Marvel side because Marvel historically has been more soap opera -y in style of storytelling, and on DC side of things, they've been more adventure pulpy driven. Uh, stories where they, they don't deal with the the average problems, although they've been trying to inject that, you know, time over time over de decades. Marvel is far more uh, adept, at least in doing that, especially um, in my rereading of certain titles across the 1980s. That was huge. It was it was very soap opery um, and entertaining, but still very soap opery. Oh, yeah. Well, a lot of this is, is throwing it, it's the idea of throwing out the old and moving forward strictly with the new. It's this this current generational, like you guys were saying, this postmodernism. There's nothing of value in what came before. Um, everything must be our way now or the highway instead of the reality, which is that. Yes, past generations have had their flaws, but they also sorted shit out little by little generation by generation so it's not like there's nothing of merit from prior generations and therefore by way of that mentors and so this idea that you know a, a pupil can just suddenly become the master and they teach the master and the master had nothing to a value to offer from the very beginning the pupil already had it all figured out um it it's bull there there's a good story that can be told where you have this melding and meeting of the minds and both parties have something to offer because they have a different perspective and different experiences and a good story can be told there but this idea that there's nothing of value in what came before just as that there as long as it's done well that there's nothing of value from new ideas either because that's not good either right that's that's how we get actual progress not progress in the the wackadoo uh definition and usage of it but that's how we 
that's how we grow. That's how we sort things out. That's how we um, grow as a society and mature as a society. And to act like there's is one way or the other is is ridiculous. It's the villain arc, actually. Yeah, that is the that, that's the tyrannical or puritanical, whichever way you want to use it, my way or the highway mentality. And and you you hit on something perfect right there. That's the villain mentality. And a lot of these characters that they're writing in modern comics, modern media, that we are told by the writer is the hero, is the protagonist. They act like villains. So to compare this to the past, we have some great examples of stories that deal with intergenerational strife. And almost always, historically, the way that's set up is that the young person is both naive and revolutionary, as most of us are, because we enter into what Piaget calls the Messiah stage of our lives, where we identify there's problems in the world and we want to fix them, right? Because we become aware of that. We become conscious of the the, the errors of the place we, in, we inhabit. Now, historically, the way that's handled, though, is that you have the revolutionary innocent youth or the naive youth who goes forth and then you have the sage or the, the parent, the older individual who is more of a traditionalist, and they can learn a little bit as well, although not quite as much. And so to, to think about this from the female perspective of a, of a story that you know is one generation old, let's say, take The Little Mermaid, which I can't believe I'm going to bring up in some sort of psychoanalysis here, but bring up The Little Mermaid, the cartoon for, Dis for Disney, and let's look at how this worked because it worked phenomenally well. We know it worked phenomenally well because it, it took over the market, and still to this day, little girls want to watch The Little Mermaid, and they want to buy the toys, and we're doing a remake this year, right? So we know that worked phenomenally well because pragmatically it worked. All right, let's look at the characters real quick. You've got The Little Mermaid, and she, Ariel, wants to enter into the human world. Okay, that's revolutionary. Then you've got her father, who represents the archetype of the traditionalist, who is in his conservatism wanting to protect her from the dangers of that and from the dangers of the sea witch. And she revolts against him, and she turns out to be right in some ways and wrong in others. Yet at the same time, despite the fact that this, this older character is presented in a tyrannical way in some points, you find out later on that he is willing to enter into what is a representation in the film of hell or purgatory when he allows the sea witch, who is herself a representation of ultimate evil, uh, uh, Satan, whatever you want. A reflection um, of the same is, values that, uh, right. that the He's willing to has, but for more out of hate as opposed to out of love. Right. And then you get a union at the end of the film. So the union is that both the revolutionary idea, okay, the liberal idea, and I say that as a, you know, sort of classical liberalism, that idea of the youth finding an error in the world and fixing it is married with the fact that the traditionalist had a strong reason to be the way that he was and he did the right thing. They're both necessary and they're both married together at the end of the film, which lets everybody know that things have been set into a right place. And that doesn't happen in modern storytelling because the writers have taken a biased position before they ever start against anything that is traditional or anything that is based on the idea of objective truth. It also seems to be averse to the concept of expositional um, wisdom, which is that if a younger pupil learns all the mistakes and all the values 
uh, of the mentor at, at that young age, then they're going to learn more um, with the more time that they have ahead of them because one, they're not going to either repeat the mistakes of their mentor, but they're going to make new mistakes, learn from that, and then carry that knowledge on to the next generation and so forth. And so that's how you kind of build um, build a society essentially because right. the, the whole reason we know how to hunt is that we've had a whole bunch of failed hunters, but the one that didn't fail who learned those, those skills, passed those skills on to the younger generation, and those that allowed them to hunt successfully more longer and then learn more skills that they'd pass on and just grew and grew and grew over time. That's kind of how you have that youthful, risky, uh, rebellious youth um, engage in the world. But at the same time, they, their rebelliousness doesn't exclude them from the ability to learn. And what we're seeing with at least in the, the lazy aspect of writing is that the, the, the rebellion, the rebellious character doesn't have to learn because they already know everything. It's literally um, the, the 17 to 21 year old college student who thinks they know everything because they, they left home for the first time. Uh, and the world is not as difficult as they expect it to be. That's only because it, once they get out of college and they actually start entering the workforce or is trying to start a company of their own, uh, that's when the world actually starts to get hard and a pain in the butt. And then, kind of you know slaps them back down and rechecks them to to realize that there was value in all the lessons that they're being um taught and ignoring prior like that part they're just trying to stay in that nice comfort zone of college where yeah well, this is the real world it's still school but i don't have parents looking over my shoulder when i come home it's like a petri dish i guess what college is that's what it's become i think is this like a a babysitting place, like a daycare for adults. That's kind of what it's become, at least in America. But, yeah. uh, but speaking of Little Mermaid, I mean, it's talk about the psychological effects of it. Look at the narrative. I mean, this Little Mermaid is very popular with with with, uh, with girls. Very, very popular. Even today, the story of Little Mermaid is still very popular. Even, you know, the the, the Disney Hans version. Christian especially. Anderson from like over 100 years ago at this point. He, exactly. It, it, it connects look, deeply with the psyche of individuals. I mean, it. This is this stuff is deep. You know, things don't work. Things don't rise up to being this level of successful because of happenstance. This thing has deep connections with people in ways they don't understand. You're exactly right. But look at the narrative structure of it as well. You look at on that too. So what, what does Ariel want? She's she's fascinated with the forbidden, you know, the forbidden fruit, you know, the the, the Eve, unknown. Eve with the forbidden fruit. And it, what's a... Ariel and wants she must, the forbidden fruit. And she must this, rise out of the depths of darkness to go to it. She exactly. must go upwards, yes. But but mostly the so her dad instills the rule that you cannot go to the service, you cannot uh, fraternize with humans and everything. Social conflict immediately. And who she falls in love with? She falls in love with a handsome human prince. Another aspect that women tend to enjoy, you know, the the powerful, strong, handsome man. Usually a prince is like the ideal the ideal uh, guy they go after, like a prince or like a, a movie star, usually a young rich guy. That's what they usually go to for. rise up in social stature. Yeah, absolutely. It's a favorite to go for. No, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's just a common trope. Now, mm. what she go with next? She has a really nice singing voice, which is uh, becomes uh, essential later on. And so she goes to a sea witch. She makes a deal with the, the with the devil in order to attain yep. a, a, a passage into you know on the surface in order to gain her legs now this is it's the women go through their own journey it's very different than a man's journey but they do go through this journey and it's the idea of she you know her sacrificing everything blindly like a like a young blind fool to get to get with this awesome man now of course it's not the man's fault 
it's really the idea of giving away too much, you know, not respecting yourself and just gouging out your your own gifts and giving them away for this one shot. And so she goes onto the, you know, goes onto the surface and, you know, they mingle and they kind of start falling in love. And then what happens next? Ursula comes in. You get that love triangle. So Ursula starts seducing Prince Eric and there's this whole, you know, social confrontation there. It's social combat, essentially. The, the, we, That's exactly, both you're them, exactly right. Both of them trying to outplay each other, where Ursula has a lot of advantages because not only does she have the, this mystical beauty, she also has Ariel's voice, which is a very powerful mechanic. And so, of course, you know, it ends with a really cool climax. But the, and of course, Eric is a good man, fortunately for Ariel. But this is a, it has everything women and girls enjoy. The the naive young princess. She's a, she is a princess, also, by the way, which is also something women tend to enjoy. They also like like being the princess. Usually, it's just they like to also be a little bit just a little bit lower than the man. But the thing is. Uh, the princess, she has all these great like servants and friends and, and all this freedom. And then the, you have, the again, the social conflict of her having lusting after this forbidden fruit, which is the surface, humans, er, Prince Eric, the, the human well, it's, un it's unexplored territory. She wants to go into unexplored territory, and she wants to be liberated into that. So it's, you know, and sometimes the, the, the movie gets condemned because she's focused on a prince. But really what this is, is that she's been sheltered. And so she wants to break free of the shelter. And oh my gosh, how many of the Disney movies are about that? <laughs> it's but a now, lot. You, you do like the... a, a bell. It's like, I wouldn't have believed this provincial town. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Now do that with She-Hulk and see how you turn out. See how many twists and turns you have to do to, to make any sense of She-Hulk. What, she what you laid out was a psychological journey that people embark upon that reflects society accurately with The Little Mermaid. Intergenerational conflict, wanting to be free, wanting to uh, enter into unexplored territory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and the older generation is willing to sacrifice everything to save the youth. Okay. Absolutely. Good. Now try to do it with She-Hulk and see you It just makes no sense. Don't think you can. And, and keep in mind that, the, as I said before, the journey of Ariel is just a female version of what they go through. So the, a, a woman will, a, a girl will do, will go through her journey trying to attain a man. The guy will go off on his journey to conquer something or to save the princess. It's the same thing, except they go through it a little bit differently. The man is more physical. He trains to be a knight, for example, to go archetypical. He'll train to be a knight to slay the dragon and save the princess. A woman will uh, train herself to, she has to her, her whole um, being is to respect herself enough to know when to say no, know when to say yes, know when to say no, How learn how to choose a good, proper man. That's kind of a journey. Right, to take control of her choice. That's that's exactly. usually the part of it. To and, take control of the choice and then be, to be strong enough to make the choice be successful. That's the, the female hero story, the, he, the female hero journey, whereas the man's journey is to slay the beast which which uh, prevents you from obtaining the treasure. Exactly. Well, it, it's, it's, it actually goes further than that because both stories have the same common theme, which is the strive for independence. A man can be independent when he can slay the dragon and protect people, and a woman can be independent when she actually is searching for love. Like, she's not requ requiring. Like, that's what the whole journey for Ariel is, is that she wants a little bit of independence. She wants to be able to fall in love, and she doesn't want to have uh, restrictions uh, on that, even though they're there out of... Um, the, the, the father, in this case especially, um, and most likely in, in many stories, the father's desire to keep the purity of his little girl um, around longer uh, oh, to go in that way. And, and that's the theme. It's like it's a woman going out on a journey to explore a new world is to explore independence, but to find a, 
find that independence by picking, choosing her own destiny by way of the man or, or whatever love interest she finds um, interesting. And the man goes in there to be like, well, I, I, I've been trained and taught by my father or mentor because one of these days they're not going to be around and I'm going to have the responsibilities that they have. Right. I better be ready for that. That's the that's the ultimate form of independence is understanding the value of responsibilities and living up to those. Same thing with with the mother. They're looking for love, but they're also looking for that next part, which is if I'm going to have children, I need to be responsible enough to take care of myself and be responsible enough to to take care of and support um, the, the person I love. So that when right, I do so have, I, so I would argue that what you're describing is already in place. So what I would argue is that you're describing self-sufficiency, and I, I do agree that the, these that's part these of it, ancient yeah. archetypes are about obtaining uh, self-sufficiency, obtaining the ability to master your domain. But I would also say that historically, the stories would say that, or the 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 the, the myth mythological stories we pay close attention to and still permeate our our stories today, that they would argue that complete independence is a vapid existence and that usually one of the the highest morals one of the highest virtues that's presented is the idea of sacrificing oneself for others and then often in the story that's reciprocated so that everything works then because you're sacrificing for one and the other is sacrificing for you and it becomes reciprocating you see that with uh frodo and samwise when they're doing yep. the trip uh to uh, to take the ring but what is the what what is a more independent act than being able to sacrifice something of yourself to help others and and be doing it of your own volition and not at the behest of of another party right like that oh sure the, I'm, I'm i'm totally yeah. in, in in agreement oh, no, with no, you on that, that. Yes. that's the fun part of exploring these types of things and and reminding people that may not be aware of them is the fact that it it, it has a broad spectrum uh, uh that allows for the character to be become whole to become real and also convey the lessons that you know we we learn always and we always learn these lessons in a difficult way we, we absorb them and experience them um you know superficially through stories and whatnot but when we actually start to learn them it's difficult it's it it's not something that we're easily uh, willing to submit to but once once we've gone through that journey we we end up valuing it a lot more and understand why you know the stories that we were told as as a children were told because it was the, their way of trying to prepare us for however way we are going to go and uh, cross that that bridge so to speak into adulthood um, and then what i would say is what i would say you know i've talked a little bit too much i want everybody else to to chime in because i'm i don't want to take up too much time here but what i would say is that these these stories when when we love them when they when they appeal to the most people they're reflecting life and truth better than usual and so when you try to restructure these stories and you try to switch the virtues to, to fit postmodernism, nihilism, et cetera, what happens is that from a psychological standpoint, you turn people away because they, they feel disconnected from what they're seeing. It doesn't reflect reality. From a market standpoint, so with She-Hulk having the type of ratings that it has or with Star Wars being theatrically dead and greatly diminished in the marketplace, the effect is that people no longer want to buy into your product, right? There's not that many people. Okay, here's an idea. How it's many lost people? Authenticity. That's it. How many people got Luke Skywalker and Yoda tattoos back in the '70s and '80s, and how many people got Ray tattoos today? Do a comparison of that because tattoos 
are, are one of the biggest indicators of the highest level of brand loyalty. And the next, the next step down is apparel. All right. How many people do you see today wearing Darth Vader, Yoda, Luke Skywalker, etc. shirts versus Ray? You don't see any of the, the Ray apparel out there. Nobody makes it. Dude, I got and a so, Darth Vader t-shirt on right now. Yes, exactly. So when you stray from stories that reflect reality, you do it at your own peril if you're a major corporation or if you're a local indie storyteller trying to make it. Uh, well said. I didn't really want to chime in too much because the conversation um, was wonderful. I had to, now, one more thing to add yeah, to this. Is, is that the, speaking of stories we heard of, of uh, little kids, and to, to prove that's not just us talking. It's not just, you know, just us going off on, on things that we... we um, it's not based on anything. Joseph Campbell even talked about this, the Little Mermaid journey, the the, the woman's journey. And it goes back way back to an Iroquois tradition that Joseph Campbell called the refusal of the suitors. And what, how these usually went was that the, the girl would be basically rejecting everyone. Every man she would reject because no man is good enough. And then here comes this perfect man. This perfect, this handsome, you know, wealthy, rich, you know, has all the all the fixings, you know. And then immediately she falls for this this flash and flare. She falls for his handsome face. She falls for his wealth, but does not and immediately. But does not check to see how well the man is. You know how how good of a man is he? She just falls for the wealth and the handsomeness, and then so she marries him. And then it turns out that this man is an evil sorcerer who has entrapped her and is going to use her as uh, as you know bait or some something nefarious. So, and then she has to go through a spiritual journey to escape this man and things like that, which is, you know, the, the woman's journey that she learns that she has to look past um, just flash and flare and good looks. There has to be something more in depth. That ha he has to be a good man. So the whole idea of uh, the woman's journey being to find, uh, be able to learn how to respect herself, how to find the, what she really needs to find in a man things like that to look past the surface level in a man because the surface level is only skin deep. They have to look, she has to look a little bit more to see how worthy of a man he is. And then to know that she shouldn't just give everything of herself. She shouldn't just destroy herself just to get a chance to have, be with this uh, superficial handsome man. It's, 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 it's same thing that men go through where they kind of, you know, the temptress, they will, their young men are tempted to give away everything, to to sacrifice their own virtue, their morals, whatever it is, to go with a, essentially a whore, like a succubus, the temptress. That's why in the hero's siren journey, of, of the Odyssey, like you're describing the two aspects of the Odyssey right now with the Odyssey. Exactly. Where Odysseus is on his way, seduced by the siren, and then his wife back home is basically was waving off all these potential suitors because they're nowhere near the man that his that her husband is. Absolutely. And for a lot for those of you out there who want a quick factoid. Mermaids in Spanish are las arenas, las arenas, because they are sirens, and the Little Mermaid is an inversion of the idea of the siren being the temptress, and instead she is tempted to go to the surface. That's that's the original inverted fun gimmick of the story. Well, the original story was, I believe, Hans Christian Andersen had the Little Mermaid. She didn't want to sing; she wanted to dance, and that's and it would end up being a tragic story where she she dies at the end of um, yeah, she doesn't get her man. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, this one here, the Disney repurposing of it, uh, still follows the heart of, of that story. And yes, does play along with the tropes. And it's not a subversion of the expectation because it doesn't demoralize it. It's a surprise. It, it's it's something that it, it's it's the welcomed twist on the concept as opposed to a demoralization of, of the idea. You guys make me want to reassess the Little Mermaid now. 
like a lot. <laughs> I mean, I've only seen it once. But no, like I was saying a moment ago, uh, it's difficult to want to interject because I'm enjoying this. But I would like to check in with the audience because we have a lot still to cover tonight. So, uh, guys, if you take just a moment, let's uh, check in with the audience. Andrew, do me a favor and pick a number. Uh, let's hit 27. 27, sure. <laughs> Oh, good old Breebot. <laughs> what was that from? <laughs> I don't know. Um, what was she eating? I don't know. Probably, I think it was some reality show she was on. Um, Gotta have her do more of those. To prove she's not a robot? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, to keep her having doing like Fear Factor stuff where she eats horrible things. That's right. Keep her busy. Yeah. Keep her busy with keep that. Keep her eating bugs and like, I don't know, sentry <laughs> eggs and stuff like that. You know, the, the really like gourmet dishes that were kind of disgusting. Like, just keep doing that stuff. Keep Brie Larson on the Fear Factor road. Because you're really not excited for the Marvels, huh? Isn't that going to be the biggest film of the year? <sighs> well, I mean, watching her watching her face drop as she eats disgusting stuff is pretty it's pretty entertaining. Far more entertaining than any she's, anything she's done recently. Well, do you remember the old show uh, Mad TV? Oh, yeah. They had Kenny Rogers Jackass on there. I would pay good money to watch Brie Larson Jackass. I think a lot of people <laughs> would, too. Oh, you gotta do all those stunts. <laughs> I was on the I last mean, Jackass movie. They they actually brought, they brought in a girl. Yeah. Do stunts and they stung her lips with a scorpion tail. <laughs> and she was into I, it. Dude, those the new generation of Jackassers or Jackass kids or whatever you want to call them, uh, they did a pretty decent job. I don't think Jackass Four is as good as the other movies, but I don't think they've made a truly terrible one. This isn't Last Jedi level. Yeah, they worked. It worked. They almost killed Preston. I mean, it's a. It was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, if that's the litmus test for a good jackass film, I agree. <laughs> Killing Preston is the right way to go. <laughs> like they had the, the new fat guy. He's even bigger than Preston. Just go like a little scooter and jump over him, and he passed out. It's like, oh, I don't think he's okay, dude. Uh, it was oh, good. Zacharias Holmes? Time. Yeah, yeah, the new guy. I forget what his name is. I actually is used it? to watch him on YouTube years ago when he only had like... I don't know, 250 subscribers. So I was actually pretty surprised to see that he made it uh, to Jackass. But, you know, good for him. So Caesar Jorpin, or Sejorjan, as he's called here on this channel, sends in a generous, very generous, massive super chat. And he says, uh, first super of the year, right? Both Buffalo Jeff buttons, please. Well, you got it. And remember, uh, Sejorjan, you also get a very special button, which we'll press in just a moment. But now, here are your Buffalo Jeff buttons. <laughs> Uh, for context, people don't even know what that is. Sorry, folks. And here's the other Buffalo Jeff button. You found my secret button. Lucky you. Lucky me. Yeah, sorry to creep those out. Listen to the chat. Uh, Shrubbles08, thank you very much, says, The word of the day is Tinkle. Debbie does Tinkle. Star Wars, The Rise of Tinkle. Hot Tub Tinkle Machine. And The Golden Showers, Tinkle Edition. Well, folks, in the chat, you know what to do tonight. Uh, we're going to have The Word of the Day is Tinkle. So send in your movie titles. And uh, Shrubbles08, uh, make sure you remind us that the word of the day, or of the word of the day on the podcast, so we can give the guys uh, their fair shake at all the wonderful Tinkle titles. Did we get to do the Pee Wee's Playhouse scream at any point? 
Man, I need to incorporate that now. If we can organically come up with the word tinkle, scream real loud. <laughs> God, I used to love that show so much. Uh, that got canceled for some reason. I never figured out why. I don't know. The little, the little Penny character where the girl had pennies for eyes. That one freaked me out a little bit. All the Penny cartoons? Oh, yeah. Those, those were... Uh, I couldn't handle those. Everything else was totally normal and fine. Just that. Just that. Did you know that Rob Zombie worked on that show? I am that not makes surprised sense. now that you say it. He is a, he is a <laughs> yeah. PA on there. Fully Robert in Thomas. on seeing that happen. Yep. And I believe she's I'm... uncredited, but Cindy Lauper sings the theme song. Ooh. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, big I'm... names on that show I'm... that you don't realize. I'm having to rethink uh, the to theme look... song now. <laughs> there's the chair of that freaking... Oh, wait, that's from Family Guy. Sorry. Oh, that's right. Okay. No, no, no. I'm with you now. I remember... it's, it's back in my head. I just kept having the... the... You know how it does the creepy little... Pee Wee's Playhouse. All the, the opening part. The yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's not, that can't be Cindy Lauper. Did they adjust her voice? Okay, I'm with you now. It's the part where you go, da 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 da. I got it. God, I used to watch. That's a show I watched so much as a kid. He, I still like to see Pee Wee Herman pop up and stuff. It's kind of one of those, like, for, for some people out there, it's like Ernest or these other live action characters that kind of tick those boxes for me. It was Pee Wee Herman. I'm, glad I'm just wondering now, was Rob Zombie part of Eureka's Castle? Because that was the other kids' show that freaked me out. I never thought that made... That that was just something on acid. I used to watch that, too. Batley, did I do... Or I meant to do that or whatever. Every oh, time yeah. he wrecked it yeah. the wall. And the little Damn. otter things with warts all over themselves. Like little leprosy otters. <laughs> what was, it was that? A, it was That's the a, 90s, dude. Terrifying. Yeah, I, I missed that part. <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> Thank God. Multicolored leprosy one. otters. Oh, go Google it. You're going to have a good time. I don't trust you. <laughs> and then, and then even more fun. Even more fun. The guy who played Magellan on Eureka's Castle is the same puppeteer who would later become Bear in Bear in the Big Blue House. So there you go. Oh, I was not aware of that, but I was From aware. Strange of things that show. can come greatness. <laughs> that that was a Disney show that uh, I was a little too old to watch, but was very well aware of it. I think I had some cousins that were into it. So. Now, up next, we have our friend, uh, where were we at? SJ Troubles 08, thank you again. He says, I'll take a Dookie Fair and a Die Hard button, please. All right, sure. Um, folks, remember, if we get through these, uh, we're going to be going into our next topic. We're going to be covering, um, well, Andrew, one of the topics we talked about at the top of the show. So we'll do this first. <laughs> <laughs> we, we like to play it by ear here. That's why we have so much fun. Yeah. Also, I'm, uh, I'm trying to do like eight things at once, folks, so... I was uh, trying to cover for you, Jeff. Shut up. Oh, yeah. Well, I can't find the dookie <laughs> button. I'm, I'm thrown off. Where the guy... How do I... There it is. What's that smell? <laughs> dookie. <laughs> Peak acting. Dude, Dookie. the fact that Hogan didn't win the 1990 Oscar for Best Picture... Or Best Actor blows my fucking mind. Is there a bigger travesty in entertainment? I'll wait. Time will tell. And then you also requested uh, one of these. Where's the diehard button? Glass? Who gives a shit about Glass? Who the fuck is this? This is Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne T. Robinson, and I am in charge of this situation. Oh, you're in charge? Well, I got some bad news for you, Dwayne. I'm not the one who just got butt-fucked on national TV, Dwayne. <laughs> Tinkle Hard, my favorite movie. 
Did you guys watch Die Hard over Christmas at all? Absolutely. I watched Die oh. Hard 1 and 2. Oh, yeah. Good man. Uh, I did as well. It was a, It's a Christmas tradition, and it will always be a Christmas tradition, because Die Hard's wonderful. Around these parts, it's a Christmas movie. All right, so um, we're going to get back to the audience and stuff in just a minute, because uh, we're... We have some more time with WDW Pro. So, um, Andrew, what do you think would be the best topic to jump to next? What do we got? Pro. What do we got in the Tumblr? Y- you know, let's... Do you have that one? Because uh, we should be able to get through this one with a, a fairly reasonable amount of time. The uh, the one about the, uh, the Flash movie? Yeah, let me pull that up real quick. Uh, let me get an image for that as well. I, over the weekend, saw toys for the Flash movie pop up. And I was like, wow, this is, these are toys that will never get released. And they didn't look like the most wonderful things ever. But I did think it was interesting to see merchandise for what could be, or what is going to be, or maybe what will never be. So, there we go. Transition time. Ezra Miller's Flash. Uh, this guy is a bit of a nut bar. But uh, we're going to save that for another day. Yeah, that that's a that's a whole nother thing. It's more than a can of worms. It's like one of those giant five can five point five gallon drinks that you're taking to the movie theater. So, as the Flash exploration of the multiverse is expected to introduce new worlds, director Andy Muschietti has confirmed that the movie will also feature a fresh version of DC's Justice League. Although the DCU is heading for a reboot, the Flash will still unravel secrets of the multiverse. Marketing for the movie has yet to ramp up, but it is known to include several established heroes such as Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck's Batman. While Henry Cavill's cameo as Superman was reportedly scrapped, Sasha Kaye's Supergirl is posed to be pushed as the forefront alongside returning Man of Steel villain General Zod, played by Michael Shannon. As per the recently surfaced featurette of The Flash, director Andy Muschietti described the film's Justice League as not that powerful. Uh, the team that the fans know. We're presenting a Justice League that is not the powerful Justice League, Muschietti says, and then he made a rundown of the team's members, including Michael Keaton's Batman, Sasha Kaye's Supergirl, and the two versions of Barry Allen. The direct previously revealed that the other Barry Allen will serve as the movie's primary villain, as a, acting as a dark flesh. And in the same featurette, uh, Jim Lee explained that the multiverse is essentially to telling the story of the Flash. He says, The great story of DC involves the multiverse, meaning there's an infinite number of Earths. There could be different versions of these characters and really explore different stories. The Flash is synonymous to the multiverse. And Barbara Muschietti, the Flash producer, also confirmed that Gal Gadot will return as Wonder Woman while explaining why Keaton, why Keaton decided to return as Batman, which, well, you guys know that he's Batman, and we don't need to talk about that. But, alright, this is a lot to unpack from this, because we still have Gal Gadot, we still have a lot of backlog of things that we were supposed to have, and like we were talking about earlier in the show, how it's superhero versus superhero over at Marvel, well, the Flash movie, it's the Flash versus the Flash. And I know there's reverse Flash, Eobard Dawn, and all that stuff, but it's not Dark Barry Allen. It's... No, yeah, it's <laughs> it's not. And it, it's funny, so the... They're calling this movie Flashpoint. And the second that they had announced that they were calling this Flashpoint, I was like, oh boy, we're going to get something on the the level of quality here of the CW Flash series version of Flashpoint, which was like half of an episode. It's probably going to have absolutely nothing to do with the actual story that was Flashpoint that was written by Jeff Johns. Um, there are very specific things that need to be in play and in place 
in order to do Flashpoint, and they have none of it. They have absolutely none of it, other than they have mentioned um, Barry's uh, dead mother, and and the, that that's part of what kicks off the whole thing. But there's a lot of missing parts to it. A lot of these characters, none of them are supposed to have anything to do with this, and. I knew going into this that, as a Flash fanatic, those of you who do not know, um, I knew going into this they weren't going to do anything that even remotely resembled the actual Flashpoint story. However, what I set aside as a bit of a concession was the fact that, okay, if we're going to be rebooting the DCEU, Flashpoint is where you have your opportunity to, to do it. Right. So you can use that as like, okay, at the end of it, you reset the DCEU with however the hell you decide to end the movie. That allows you to kind of a la carte, piecemeal, pick and choose exactly what you want to keep and exactly what you want to throw away. Really, really easily. And you don't really have to get into too much detail about it either because you just did Flashpoint, which is known as a, a rebooting story arc. You could, you could throw away all the stuff that didn't work. You can keep the things that did. Um, but the, the, they're showing very little sign of doing that properly. What it seems like is they're holding on to things that don't work, and they're getting rid of things that do. And it really annoys me as a Flash fan, personally, that they're using the other Barry Allen as a dark Flash. It's like, Guys, come on. How, how hard would it be to just do Aobard Thon? Like, come on. Just do the reverse Flash. He's pretty Dude, Turtle Man. Can we have bad guys again? Can we just, can we just have the bad guys come back? Stop no. making, like, evil superheroes. Oh, freaking reverse Flash is integral to this story specifically. You have to have Thon for this story. It's the entire thing. If you don't You're have Thon, you, you don't have Flashpoint. Well, so, you're not wrong there, but the biggest mistake you could do to introduce the Flash cinematically to the world is use the story that's basically essentially trying to reset the, the comics and did so as a failure. Oh, yeah. Because, well, I, I think yeah. that doing Flashpoint as your, your starting Flash movie is absolutely stupid to begin with. But if you're going to do it, then make it make sense or at the very least leverage it properly, which is why I was saying, fine, this lets you reboot your your uh expanded universe this lets you get rid of the things that didn't work this lets you pretend like man of steel and bvs and uh zack snyder's justice league never happened but that's not what they're doing with this no but the other part too is that if they were to stick with that type of um uh method what you've ostensibly done is you said, yes, we're saying it never happened, but if you want the full story, you got to go back and watch all those bad movies. And I mean, that's why Warner brothers is, is kind of circling around this idea on the rumor mill that they're going to do a complete and full reset of the, of the, of the, all the characters, because well, that's why we keep hearing about all these recastings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think that, this movie should have honestly been scrapped to begin yeah. with. Like, take take the L before you, before you start putting money into too much more marketing, before you start putting it into theaters and things like that. Scrap it, write it as a loss on your taxes, and move forward with your lives. A because... huge loss. It's been in production for seven years. 
Yeah, no, it's been in production for a heinous amount of time. Um, they've had numerous reshoots. I I can't wait to see what the final bill on this film is in terms Multiply of... Multiply it by three whenever they release it. Because again, money has been spent on this movie since it started production in Exactly, inflation has skyrocketed. It's not even just inflation. It's the fact that they they have to keep paying these people. <laughs> right. Everybody has to come back to, to reshoots. And the other part too is some of that is already in their, in their contracts originally negotiated. And a lot of the stuff that they've done was not, they had to renegotiate. They've had to spend more money. It again, r- renting sets, even if they're like just green screen sets that are going to be chrono keyed out or digital, what have you still costs money and still costs a lot of money when you're doing that over the course of seven years, stop and go back and forth. Yeah, it. I I'm with you though. I do think this movie should have been shit canned, because what fan is going to get excited by what's there? I mean, no Flash fan likes Ezra there. Miller as Barry Allen. He's not Barry Allen. He whatever the fuck, uh, Zack Snyder wrote that character as didn't resemble any iteration of the Flash ever, Barry Allen or not. You should probably cast somebody who can run. That's 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 probably dude, a starting point. I, I was I was a cross country and track sprinter, so when I saw his running form, I was like, "What in the actual hell are you doing right now?" Well, so here's the deal on the, on the Flash movie. I get that it is insanely expensive and it's been in development forever, and I get that it's the device by which they want to do the reboot. However. If they're not going to bring Henry Cavill back, if he's not going to make an appearance, nobody cares. Let's just go ahead and rip the Band-Aid off. All this other stuff, the Joker sequel and all that, put it under a DC black label so people know it's not part of the mainline, and let's go straight to the James Gunn thing and let's do it because we need to quit playing around with this junk. Because once Henry Cavill is out, nobody wants to keep going back to this thing. It was always all about Superman. Let it go. It's yep. always should have been about Superman. Well, I mean, it, a little bit, yes and no. It was actually, it got to be a point where it's all more about Henry Cavill than Superman. Like, that's the other part, too, as to why I think they kind of want to go in a younger direction is the fandom behind Henry Cavill, which is great and well-earned, um, is superseding the, the actual concept of, like, hey, we're trying to do a Superman movie. It's like, no, we want a Henry Cavill as Superman movie. And, and that's not good for branding when you're trying to start a franchise this late into the game. It, it it's basically means that, oh, great. Now, we, because we have this fan demand on that, he's going to use that to negotiate a higher price. The whole idea for Warner Brothers is we need to get our budgets down, and they probably want to go through the formula, which is usually a smart one, uh, which is that we should really get a low name or unknown to play these roles so that they can embody the brand of it on this new venture as opposed to um, the actor taking over the brand. I see what you're saying with that, but sometimes you have a casting that is so perfect that there's no reason to not go with it. Oh, no, I completely uh, agree with that part. Like, I think that Henry Cavill was brilliantly cast for the role. It's a shame that he never got to play the role, actually. Um, he, he was wasted for 10 years. That's a huge injustice to to him as an actor and even to the studio for having the rights to the character and trying to get something out with him. Um but at the same point, even though he is a uh, perfect cast, he is not the only one. There are enough actors out there that we will find someone that will be a good successor um, and, and and fit the role 
as it should be if we're most importantly if we're lucky if the casting directors if the the people involved in that production actually find someone that has that magic jelly that is needed for this type of character uh, i think henry cavill had it and uh it was wasted because the, the person who um, was overseeing that didn't know what jelly was or how to spread it or even present it to a pro to a to a willing audience that really liked the idea to make it palatable like the whole regime at WB from Kevin Suchihara to Jeff Johns to Walter Hamada, they screwed the pooch for 10 years. They did. And it's as somebody that's been there since day one as a fan, it's hard to care what they like did. Oh, we're going to fix it. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. I don't care. Like I, it's me personally, I needed to start fresh because I like a lot of the parts, a lot of the actors, but I'm done. There's nothing else to salvage from this. I mean, well, when they and threw out Henry Cavill, they definitely didn't have anything worth salvaging. I mean, as much as I love Gal Gadot, Gal Gadot, Wonder Woman cannot be the crux of your DC universe. That, that sounds like a horrible thing to say. I love Wonder Woman. She's part of the DC Trinity. But Superman needs to be at the forefront. I agree. And you just threw him out. And well, you've got to settle on a Batman. Yeah, There's got to be a one. Batman. And let's go with it. Yeah, that was Pick a problem. One that's I had not Rapid Pattinson. You're not. This isn't a Bat Pat uh, enthusiast panel. The movie was, <laughs> as a movie, it was fine. Um, in the suit, he was fine. It was a horrible Bruce Wayne. Um, yep. And I'm not gonna go on my rant about uh, Dollar General Zodiac Killer Riddler. Well, he let's put it this way: Robert Pattinson is good enough an actor to play a Bruce Wayne Batman. The problem is, is that he wasn't like like Henry Cavill. Not what was written. He wasn't what was what was written. And also, the other part, which was kind of egregious, is he he's a pretty boy actor who doesn't want to beef up and become a fully masculine. And I think that's also a, that would be a red flag for anyone who's being considered for Batman. Is like, listen, you you should. Even, even Michael Keaton in the 80s bulked up as best he could at his age of like 37, 38. Look to do what Batman in Ben Affleck did. <laughs> ben Affleck had to take drugs to do his stuff, but he did. He, yes. he, even, he, he got it up there. Um, so, and, and same with um, Christian Bale. They they put in the work because, again, it's they knew what was required of, of this role physically in order to you know create that verisimilitude that, yes, this is... Um, a guy who could hold himself in a fight. And I respect the more he the can sound like Kevin that. Conroy, the more I will be eager to accept because that's a, that's a heck of a law. So find somebody yeah. who can sound anything like him. Now, Pro, I know you got to get going. Uh, so is there anything you'd like to say to the audience before we uh, let you go? Well, I've had a heck of a start to 2023, and um, I sure would enjoy continued support in all of these endeavors that park place which has been mentioned uh, during the show today is the website where i'm a writer and editor and it was taken down for a while from uh, malicious actors who just didn't want us to exist but we're back up again we recoded the thing and uh, made it ddos uh what would you say ddos approved i don't know not approved but uh, repellent maybe and uh, so that's up and running. So people can visit that at www.thatparkplace.com where we cover all the news that should be fun. I've also started a brand new YouTube channel. And so if you'll just search for WDW Pro, you'll find me. Got a video coming out tomorrow at 1030 in the morning where we'll be discussing Steven Tyler and uh, the allegations against him that have a direct impact on rock and roller coaster. 
at Disney's Hollywood Studios in Orlando, Florida. And then finally, people can follow me on Twitter at WDWPro, the number one. Uh, and funny thing, people ask me, well, why didn't you just get WDW Pro? And I say, I did. It was automatically banned the moment I created it in the pre-Musk Twitter world. So somebody in San Fran did not care for me at that point. But uh, guys, thanks so much for having me on today. And it's it's been a real pleasure. I hope I can join you again sometime and we'll dive deep into the psycho uh, analytical points of The Little Mermaid once more. I can't wait, folks. That is going to be the social event of the season. But if you cannot wait, That's right. make sure you're subscribed to the WDW Pro channel and go to thatparkplace.com for all your information because there's a lot going on. And uh, these guys do a wonderful job documenting it. And WDW Pro, thanks for joining us tonight, man. Always a pleasure to have you. And anytime you want to come on, you know how to contact me, dude. Everybody out there, have fun and have a great 2023. See you later. Mods in the chat, can we get uh, Pro's YouTube channel link dropped in there? I'd do it myself, but I'm not wrenched. By the way, do me a favor. Just make that. a standard comment <laughs> in the regular chat, and I'll make you that. I'm like, Jesus, I need to do that. <laughs> Jeff just saw it. <laughs> Jeff just saw through me. <laughs> hey, By the way, I, I get what's up. <laughs> anyone else uh, feel that this weedy, heavy push for the DC, the DCU to go towards multiverse kind of feels like a loss? It feels like a a surrender it absolutely yeah. is a lot because it, mm -hmm. to me going multiverse is kind of like using utilizing time travel like it's something you use when you have no more ideas left <laughs> when you have the franchise on its death legs that's what it feels like to me it's also like a parallel form of rebooting without rebooting it's like yeah we're just gonna have all these other versions and you can just kind of pick and choose your it, it's showing a lack of commitment and it's also taking the one concept that was used as as essentially a band-aid to fix you know the continuity in the comics and and just abusing it to all hell at this point. Because like this, it really feel like they're doing exactly that. There's a, a big bandage. Like, oh, this guy sucks. Well, let's try this guy from another universe. Oh, this well, guy look, sucks. Try this guy multiverses from are are the ultimate um, crutch for lazy lazy writing for for storytellers who do not want to do the requisite research and homework to be able to properly play within the confines and rules that are established in somebody else's sandbox in a multiverse you get to just say oh well, it's a different world it's oh, just yeah. an alternate world it's just an alternate universe this character can totally act like this especially this character can totally boat. look like this especially if you don't want to rock the boat of status quo where you have to keep the status quo to keep your what, what, what whatever's left of your cash cow you can't really permanently kill off bruce wayne you, you can kill him off for a little bit to make him uh to put in like one of his sidekicks a little bit to make it refresh, you know, refreshing. But he, they always bring him back. Like, how many times has Bruce Wayne died? Like a million? Like, does he, does he get like free Sundays every every ten deaths? Mm -hmm. um, he has like, more lives than Catman in his magic cape. Exactly. <laughs> so, like, uh, where status quo is God, it's really hard to make these stories take these stories seriously after a while because there's nothing can actually happen. And if it does happen, it can't stay there. The only thing, the only time they can actually have things happen permanently is if they do another universe, like in um, Injustice, where they actually make the whole world change forever, where Superman becomes a tyrant and, all the, and people die for real, for real. You know, just don't, don't come back. But they have to do that in another universe. Death, they can't do that deaths in, in comic books have been handled horribly for for decades. I mean, they did the whole death of Superman proved that there are only few deaths, a few deaths in comic books that have actually truly meant something. Um, the, the first and most important of which being Gwen Stacy. Um, and then the other, I would say, would be um, Captain Marvel. 
Well, remember Alan Moore crippled Batgirl. I this that's a permanent cripple, and she got shot in the spine, and she was in a wheelchair for a very long time, and then boom, they brought her back. Now she can run again. I got better. <laughs> well, that, better. that's also part of the other the the curse of the eighties of DC of DC, which is that the Elseworlds stories were so popular. DC's desperation to get those numbers up on their regular titles was to incorporate the attitudes or some of the storylines from those Elseworlds in there. Like the Killing Joke was not supposed to be part of the main continuity. Oh, definitely not. And no. yet it dissolves really well to the point like, okay, we'll make Barbara paralyzed. And people are like, why? <laughs> Uh, and yeah, granted, they did take her in an interesting direction with Oracle, and, and it did eventually lead to the Birds of Prey run by Chuck Dixon, which is like one of my favorites of, of his runs because it's so much different than what you normally get. I mean, you don't of... like Gail Simone's Birds of Prey? Gail Simone has had a lot of help uh, in, <laughs> o- over the years. I And when you see that help has gone and you see what she can actually do, you realize that, yeah, she she was there because she was the girl in the office that people kind of liked. I don't know why, but they did. And what's likable about her? I mean, I would say that definitely changed. I've already, I've already had a number of, of various other writers that I've come in passing say that, oh yeah, some of the episodes that she's credited with, with on Justice League Unlimited, she was, she was there and she kind of did something to it, but we had to rewrite it to make it work. And I'm like, yeah, I believe that. <laughs> yeah, Oracle was something interesting because on the one hand, I love Babs. Um, phenomenal as Batgirl but at the same time Oracle felt like this really interesting uh, way to both grow the character out of what I view personally as more of a uh, subordinate or um, kind of growth role I, I put Batgirl in the same category as I put Robin I see it as something that this is a younger ward who trains and comes up alongside Bruce, but eventually grows out of the role and then moves on to do their own thing, like Dick did as Nightwing. I see Oracle as that for Babs, but it was an, it's an interesting play on that in that in some ways it was forced on her because you know she lost the was, ability to use yeah, her legs. I mean, but at the same time, that would that would show a lot of character strength and growth in that she learned to accept that and take full advantage of that because she's she's incredibly smart she's brilliant and so she's leveraging the skills and abilities that she does still have access to and can then hone in on those and develop those even further um so well, she's still finding yeah. value despite a physical flaw and like and that's the other part too that, that that's a great social commentary is that yes just because there's something a little bit wrong with you here and there doesn't mean that you can't contribute in a meaningful way. Uh, and they don't do that directly. That's an indirect um, aspect of their character. But you're, you're absolutely right, uh, Andrew. Like if you like you could have a logical progression of Babs saying retiring the Cape of Batgirl and be like, listen, I'm taking a desk job because maybe I, I fall in love and I want a family or maybe things have gotten too, too close to call on my father's only child. I don't want to you know, have him outlive me. You know, there's lots of reasons you can explore that are justifiable to get to that point. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, but the way that Detective Comics has been handling their characters, I, I would argue since the early 80s has been pretty horrible. Yeah. I, my relationship with Batman books is more like, hey, the seminal hits are the ones I will gravitate towards. But a lot of Batman is just a weird gray area for me as a fan. Like there's the hits, there's the court of owls. There's all these great things every once in a while, but 
I like Batman. the Prey and Terror series by Doug Mensch. Uh, those were really good miniseries from Legends of the Dark Knight. Oh, back in the day? Yeah, I have those. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there was even Dr. like... Dr. Hugo this... Strange Stories, yeah. And there was one called like The Cult before that. There were a lot of like good Batman like mini stories or mini events. I love those. It just picking up like Detective Comics has always been kind of a story. It's based on the storylines. I can't support that book all the time. Um, but I didn't, I'm glad I never read a lot of Tom King because his name keeps coming up tonight. And I only know him as the guy that married Batman only to get stood up at the altar. And that's about it. So, yeah, oh, retailers got. All the retailers got pissed off at uh, DC for that move. Um, Don't you know that's that having Batman be sad is this the it's the most brilliant thing ever. Well, ma- having look, there there are two things wrong with that. It was so a fat having, psyops. Yeah, <laughs> having <laughs> having Batman get married to begin with is out of character and just wholesale wrong. Gotham is his girl. He should have, it should have been Gotham him. is his life. Yeah, it he, should have he, been him leaving Catwoman at the altar. He if you're gonna I do agree. that, then yeah, that'd be him waking up and like, no, I can't do this. It he, he'll flirt with um he'll the flirt with is, Selena. Is the only he'll... way Batman would ever consider marriage is if Gotham got to the point where he felt like the mission was on its way to being accomplished. Because again, he's doing this. Um, out of dedication, out of um, respect to try and create some sort of meaning in the senseless violence that occurred to his, his his parents. But the other part too is that he he's a master strategist, a tactician. He's brilliant with psychology, criminology. He has a very strong core set of moral values, but he also knows that he has to have a life and there's and he, yeah, he's willing to sacrifice that to save the city. But if he's if he's actually achieving his goal and he's getting closer and closer to Gotham being something that would be considered average, where, yes, the police are nowhere near as corrupt as they were when he was a child. They're actually able to rein in and control these the the, the crime rate and the supervillains are kind of fading away in the background and no longer as active. Then he's that's the point where we'd be like, I can actually probably rest now. But we don't want to hear that, see that story as part of the main line of issues, because that's that's like batman's like precursor to his retirement it's like it's trying to give us a a somewhat happy ending for his journey to show that it was all worth it to get to this point that that is an elseworlds things that is its own part tom king trying to weave something of that nature of marriage and whatever into the main continuity is a stupid stunt um trying to parallel it to um superman and lois when they got married in, in the in the 90s and just quote unquote turn it on its head to really is just doing a disservice to to the character and to the people that buy those books. One hundred percent. Agreed. Sorry, I had, I had muted to eat a cherry. I know, <laughs> weird thing to say, but Jesse came back. She's like, "Hey, there's cherries here." So at least I didn't mute it to pop a cherry. That is correct. Um, thank you. <laughs> I don't know. I would have respected oh. you for it. I would have I would have thought that it would have made a great radio for tonight. So, <laughs> you know, 2023, what an interesting way to start the new year. Um, never mind. We're not going to go down the path anymore. <laughs> um, guys, it's, it's somebody who wants to or somebody who has dedicated their life to this stuff. It always is funny to talk about what is popular enough to get adapted or what is popular enough to. Uh, for these companies to see value in. 
And the Flash, all of this DC stuff, at the end of the day, man, it's just so... It's a, a ship that has sailed. And I'll always be fascinated by the situation around it. But damn it, this might be the greatest missed opportunity ever. Yeah. As, as a massive Flash fan, I would... I would agree. It, it's a massive missed opportunity on several fronts, not the least of which, again, going back to rebooting your your universe um, efficiently, effectively, and the other being really popularizing the Flash in a in a good way. the The CW Flash um, popularized the Flash in the bad way, the normie way, the CW way, which is the feelings and hallways way. Um, and, and no hero, it's always a team, right? The the bad, we are the Flash. God damn it, I wanted to hit somebody in the face for that one. Um, wait, that was a line from the show? Oh, uh, yeah, yes. Oh, see, yes. see, the CW, in order to meet their hour long show limit, they have to incorporate a bunch of other characters to you know pad out that episode. So, the Flash or any other superhero can't be the self sufficient superhero with the necessary skills to. You know, fight uh, fight villains and and whatnot on their own. They have to have a, a hacker. They have to have a security guard. They have to have an old wise man or a cop ally, or and they all have to know the secret. Like th- they can't be just agents of the the Flash as part of like, you know, they're just to give them a little bit of information. But the Flash or, or Arrow or Batman, or whatever, they solve the problem on their own by way of the information that they piece together from their friends and allies. In this case, no, it's they're all a team. They're all in one central location. And they're spouting BS and telling the Flash, oh, uh, if you want to run on water, run at this speed. It's like, dude, you're running. You can't calculate your own rate of speed by running. Like, just just run as fast as you can. Like, that's all you got to do. I mean, the, the the Incredibles did it better when Dash is running as, and uh, away from the guys. And he's all of a sudden running on water. He looks down, he laughs, and he takes off. That's how you do that thing for, for the Flash. You don't say, oh, you need to run 458 miles per second in order to travel on water or run up a building. But Flash has to just run as fast as he can and try and do it. And that's enough. That's good enough. And that's more interesting and thrilling, too, because it's a a surprise. You're not, you know, you're not killing the joke before you make it. Well, would you rather watch the 1991 Flash show with Mark Hamill? John Wesley Ship? John Wesley Ship, there you go. I couldn't think of his name. Um yeah, I've got it on DVD. I just miss that era of the superhero show where, the, yeah, it's hokey and yeah, it's over the top. But like the adventures of, or the new adventures of Lois and Clark or whatever that show is called with Dean Cain and Superman. Like that. Oh, yeah. I liked that tone. I liked I liked that stuff. Um, no, I've been, I've been a... posting little cut scenes from that show and talking about how it does quite well of representing the, the Superman character. Um, and it, it's able also to balance comedy without it stopping the, the show itself. Like that's one of the things Marvel has unfortunately forgotten how to do early on yeah. in its creation is they do a joke or bring in some levity and it just stops the movie cold. And then it kind of has to restart up again afterwards. Um, yeah, like Lois, the first season of Lois and Clark and a couple episodes in season two are really well done. Great little snippets of the character and the relationship and, the reason that it, I think it works is that because they were on a budget and because the writer admittedly said, I don't know how to write action and I, and I don't even know the character that well, but I'm going to do my research and I'm going to write it in a genre that I'm very good at. 
and that was romantic comedy. And but she made it work as best she could, knowing that okay, we have this much money, so we can only do a couple of Superman stunts. So we got to lean into the things of what what works, what people like, and that is character, character relationships, character conflict, love triangles, uh, goals, desires. Things all have to be running through uh, to motivate the, these people, and it ended up working out really well until CBS and um, and some of the powers that be at Warner Brothers were like, we want you to put Lois and Clark together. And the showrunner, Deborah Joy Levine, was like, I was hoping not to put them together until the very last season, like when we know for sure we're not going to do another one. And they said, yeah, no, forget that. We're going to go right away. And you and your entire writing team can leave. And Robert Singer will keep and we'll have him take over the show. And that's why it kind of rushed and was eventually canceled after its fourth season. But it probably would have gone on for about seven. Hmm. Did you... um? What was the other live-action DC show that wasn't Birds of Prey? Wasn't there, like, one other one in the 90s? Um, maybe I'm thinking of that Justice League pilot that never got made. There, there was, oh, God, there was the Justice League pilot. Uh, there was Superboy, which uh, did start in the 80s and carry over into the 90s. Um, what else was there? There was Smallville. That was 2001. Yeah, was I'm probably just misremembering that Justice thousands. League thing. That was hokey. Oh, I know what I'm thinking of. Sorry, it's a Marvel show. Generation X. I'm thinking of that show. That oh. X-Men spinoff. Yeah, I remember that too. There's just this weird... It's funny how the people today... Like, we're all well aware of how good we have it in terms of superhero genre entertainment. The MCU used to be an achievement. These DC films used to be these Oscar-winning uh, game-changers. But we're also aware of, you know, the Albert Pugh 1990 Captain America movie or the <laughs> Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Like, we're all aware of how hokey and shitty those things can be. And even though we have come a long way from those days, there's a charm that comes from the stuff of yesteryear that today is just embarrassed to have. And you don't have to have your Richard Donner looking through the hazy lens of Americana. Oh my God, I can feel my childhood on screen. No, you could just have some something more modern, but something akin to like I don't know something something to look forward to at these things, or some kind of um, I don't know otherworldliness that you I don't know, phrase it. They're just they get to they get so serious and stern in DC especially like with that Titan show they always want to be edgy, edgy yeah. and trying to chase the Nolan high and it's it's just sucked since well actually there's hey, no no the, words it's not just the Nolan high they're actually chasing the Tim Burton high because since Tim Burton's venture into Batman it's all about we got to make it dark and every every time you hear a, a trade announcement or people talk about the the next Batman film or whatever it's like yeah we're gonna make this dark and serious it's like you said that the last time, and you said that the last time before that. And yeah, before how that. much darker are you planning on making this? Exactly. You're basically going into <laughs> You've already had him killing people. What else are you going to do? You've already got him going as far into the abyss as possible. Why not just try and make it fun and earnest where, yeah, they're silly, they're silly uh, colorful villains, but what they're doing is very serious, and there's there's a certain level of weight and, and, and verisimilitude to it in the fact that not to – turn 
our world, not, not, to, not to bring Batman and his ilk into our world and try and make that believable, but to make the world so convincing that we just believe it exists. Because that's what verisimilitude really kind of makes. It's it's taking the, the familiar aspects of what our reality is, playing it out earnestly so that we can believe that this that we this well-aware fictional world feels real. Like the Superman, the, the movie, feels like a very real film, like a real world, because it has a lot of the familiarity of things. But it's also hokey. You've got two jokey cops that are chasing Otis, and one of them dies, and Lex Luthor is making like, lib remarks and what have you and punching Otis in the face trying to and, he, and there, he's able to stop an, a nuclear missile convoy twice two of them to, to reprogram those missiles that is absurd but it's played straight and it's played well and you believe it because th th they build up to it slowly over the course of that film uh, there's nothing wrong with that it, it stop trying to make our reality fit into these these characters just sell us the world that was, has been successfully conveyed to us on comic book form for 80 years and the audiences will believe it. Well, hopefully that's what DC will try this time. That's the most optimistic answer I can give. <laughs> we got a taste of that with the Suicide Squad. I mean, that is a very absurd, and, and also with the Peacemaker, it's a very absurd world, but it's consistent to the point where you kind of believe that this this is how it exists here. And, and that's the other part that's too. That's fair. They, they I just don't, didn't like it. They don't try to contradict <laughs> them what they set up, which is the other part. Again, another part of verisimilitude. Once you set a rule, stick to it. Don't backtrack on it. And yeah, I mean, yeah, you say we will about like the Suicide Squad and Peacemaker. That's fine. I, I enjoyed it because it is ostensibly making fun of the, the previous regime's approach to these characters. Well, the thing it, is with the, the new Suicide Squad movie, the second one, is that it proved that you can actually have serious moments and, and cover serious topics while also being incredibly goofy. Yeah. And still feeling like a, like a wacky superhero st uh, story or movie. Yeah, almost leaning into it and, and showing reverence to it as opposed to being like, oh, we don't want kids to, you know, giggle at this. And I'm, I'm of the mind, it's like, if you can tell a dark Batman story that kids can actually smile and walk away from and not have nightmares, you've succeeded. Because you've just hit the broadest spectrum. You've got those, you've just hooked those fans for life. Um, and that's kind of what you want to do. I, I hate this um this patronizing approach, like, oh, it's for kids, or you got to make it for kids. There's nothing wrong with that. Kids want to be adults, which means that as long as you're writing something that adults would like but is accessible to children, they will buy into it. Batman the animated series was pitched as a show for kids, but I know more adults today that still like watching it <laughs> than uh, you'd expect from a cartoon show or any other cartoon show that came out of that era. And well, it's yeah, because it... kids want to grow up. They want, they, they see the idealized version of what it is to be an adult. And they're like, Oh, I want that. And I want that now. But unfortunately time requires for them to grow up and figure that out. And once you kind of realize that and you realize that's how you write for kids by kind of showing them, teasing them what adulthood is like, that's when you hook them. And that's what it, it truly means to write for children. With the Batman the Animated Series, that also proves that, I mean, Batman was fighting like giant bats and, you know, frozen men and ninjas and stuff like that. It was, it was kind of technically wacky. But the thing is, it, it still covered very mature, it still had very mature writing. Very mature writing. Yes. Absolutely. And and it's, that that was technically, they, they hit the magic formula of how do you hit the broadest audience with that, and even knowing that you're targeting a younger demographic. It's like we realize that 
one of the things that a lot of writers that I, I meet now, especially on the younger part of things, uh, especially the writers I met who did this terrible show called Caillou, they forgot <laughs> that parents sometimes watch programming with their kids. And when when you when you think about that, you have to realize, oh, I'm not just writing this for the children. I'm writing this for the parents as well. What can I do to make them enjoy it in their own way so that it's it's a shared experience between you know, parent and child and not just, oh, great. You got to watch this terrible Caillou show with this creepy, bald kid, not, not understanding basic common sense. Like that's kind of what you have to figure out. Um. So yeah, that's why I really, that's why I like Batman the anime series. That's why I enjoyed uh, Master He Man and Masters of the Universe. That's a very well written um, show for its time, and some of the writers from that show are were working on Batman the animated series. Uh, there's nothing wrong with capturing some of what they were those intentions and trying to put reinject that into current day uh, superhero franchises and even just uh, like into new IPs. Just remember that there's, there's more than one age group that's going to be watching your movie or, or television show. And and that's one of the biggest failures of She-Hulk. You cannot show that to children. No. At all. Like it Well, this is something that, uh, that Eric talks about all the time. Um, it, take the uh, old 90s X-Men animated series, for instance, or any of the uh, animated like DC or Marvel series from back in the 90s, honestly. Um if you go back and watch those now as an adult, you realize that they were touching on some fairly deep topics and material. But as a kid, you don't notice that. You don't realize that. You're not cognizant of that because your your mental maturity and growth isn't there yet. And that's fine. But it's something that when you go back and think about it, you're like, oh, wow, that that was actually a lot deeper than I ever gave credence to and in a lot of cases you we we gr via growing up with those we take some of the morals that we learn from those characters from those stories with us into adulthood and we realize oh i this kind of helped shape me and at least on some level and that's good writing that's your you're not writing down to your audience that's you are you're just writing a good story you're utilizing universal truths and your audience will be able to then just consume and enjoy it. And if they're at the uh, mental maturity level of being able to grasp the concepts at a deeper level that you're presenting to them, they'll be able to do that too. That, that seemed to be a really pivotal part of just 90s entertainment. And the culture shifted, you know, when do you think? When do you think the culture shifted? Oh, three, oh, four. I mean, when stuff started to get real in the real world, we kind of shifted away from putting real world things in kids shows. Because I've seen this really interesting thesis online about films like Fight Club and Office Space and The Matrix, how they exist in a world that doesn't exist anymore. This very comfortable suburban existence, or American Beauty, these things like that, and. Um, I was just wondering, like, where do you think maybe we lost the acceptance of putting, like, those serious... Oh, 9-11. 9-11? I was going to say that, but I thought that was too lazy of an answer. I didn't want to go with 9-11, but... It had a huge ripple effect. I mean, it, you couldn't laugh for a short period of time. Uh, you couldn't um, you couldn't go after 
uh, certain foreign elements or certain ideologies because it was considered too uh, anti-politically correct. Um, it like the world never changed. The world changed significantly after that. Never got back, even though it was like Dave Letterman, the first one to say, "Like, listen, this tragedy happened, but we got to laugh again because if we laugh again, we prove that they didn't really get to us as deeply as they they had." And sadly, not enough people took that to heart and followed through with it. And that's kind of how we got to this to this point. Um, that that's one of the catalysts. Um, I will say it it had been circulating um, a, a, around media for a while. Uh, you can go back to uh, a Sam Raimi pilot called Mantis, uh, which um, is about a black superhero who's paralyzed and whatever. If you look at that, oh pilot, Mantis, a, wow! A, look at that pilot; it has a ton of woke elements in its infancy. Uh, I'll check it out. Uh, it's very bad. The the following shows after that are eh, hit and miss, but yeah, if you want to go, like that's one of the earliest parts. The next part was that. Um, even though 9-11 occurred during the production of it, Smallville took the idea of a Clark Kent and instead of making him this uh, happy-go-lucky kid that's trying to balance the burdens of having these powers and going through the super puberty, they make him a whiny bitch for 10 years. And when you do that to a, a, a character that's very important to Americana, it, it does have rippling effects because now you have a whole generation that has watched that show. And what do we see on TikTok and social media? A bunch of whiny bitches. <laughs> I mean, it correlates I, quite well. I agree with that. I, and I also wanted to, you know, just to see where people drew that line. Cause it's in stuff I'm working on in the future. I use that as a, the line of demarcation for certain things. So I'm glad it's not just me. And you know, I I wonder if that's why certain. Okay, so for personally, what I'm trying to say is, there's always been a weird disconnect between like me and people of my generation that are maybe like three to four years younger. I've always been like, what is it? There's like when I was in college, I transferred schools, and at first I thought it was Cincinnati. I'm like, but I'm from here. The people are all whatever the same, and it just was this weird disconnect. And I wonder if maybe. There's the correlation or connection between the people that grew up consuming that kind of stuff that would have the real heavy messages versus the people that never really had those thoughts during those formative years and just don't know how to handle those types of situations or have the mental faculties to even, I don't know, analytically think about that stuff. Is that too out there of a theory or do you think that is something that could be possible? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think there's pockets of regional pockets throughout the West and, and other parts where that is probably true. And then there's those that can do critical thinking and have figured out stuff and, um, and, and take a moment before they have their knee jerk response to, to situations. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, like every generation has some sort of significant milestone um, for our parents. Uh, there, there was a couple, there was the um, moon landing, there was the candy assassination, there's the war of Vietnam, like those things all happen pretty close together. In our generation, we've got, you know, uh, we had the Iraq war and the fall of communism in 89, 90 ish. Then you had 9-11. And then you had uh, a financial crash. And now we got the pandemic, like it, it's this a lot of intense stuff is happening over over 25 years, over 25, now 35 years. Um, and it does change and shape society in a different way the the, the question being is that are, is there going to be enough of us to uh inspire the, the masses to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps and 
and you know take the lessons we learned from this and, and go forward again to go all the way back to earlier in the show where we were talking about mentors and wisdom and conveying that to the pupil and and how valuable it is for the pupil to learn and not just us uh, not just have the mentor say no you're you're perfect you're right at everything i'm wrong i have to learn i'm i'm the old dog that can't learn any new tricks type of thing um yeah it's <laughs> it, it's a very interesting um thing to live in as an adult when you grew up in history learning about the, the similar parallels that happened to your in your parents generation or your grandparents generation now um let's check with the audience because i feel like they have a lot of stuff they want to talk about but jack white did send in this big super chat uh that is topical and that's why i'm reading it folks but thank you jack for the the love and the support he says i think other major factors as to why we're seeing this stuff and attitudes we see with the woke freaks one of them is the marxist subversion of academia and the parents of those woke freaks not doing their jobs um, how would you respond to jack's comment I think he has something there. I also think it, ha it has something with the idea of the fact that we've, we've had a society that um, with the way the economy has worked, you if you were going to have a family, both parents typically would need to be working. And so as a result, they're, they're not able to give the full attention to their children, keep an eye out for them. They're also not able to give full attention to the teachers that are supposed to be teaching the children. In fact, we've had this attitude where public school and even private and charter school has ostensibly become a form of um, private or state funded daycare and not a place of education. And while there is a movement right now of homeschooling your kids, there's there's you have to explore the possibility that that could also have a disastrous effect with the fact that not every parent is going to have the, the resources needed to teach the best out of their children. Um, although I don't begrudge them for trying because you, you have to do that. It's the responsibility of a, of, a, of a parent, but it could lead to a stagnation in, in education or at least access to information. Um, and, and because the public school system, despite what you may think of it, when it started to become more in, in play, uh, yes, it was first used to kind of create laborers, but people were able to take the, that education if they had talent and skill and dedication, they were able to, you know, uh, elevate themselves to a different financial class and go further and further and it wasn't just limited to the the extremely wealthy and the and the legacy of of of, uh, of uh, like say the the aristocracy at that point um it changed and expanded and people you know you know now there's way more people with way, way much more wealth now than there was 100 years ago and and that's that's in part parcel to public education and then later with uh expansion of private education and private universities and, and whatnot so to, to have that movement to say, yeah, we want to take all our kids out of uh, public schools and even some of the private schools that have been infiltrated by those ideologies. I understand that fear, but I think the better course of action would be to bite the bullet, get more involved in the public and private, because again, you're paying for it and compelling and you know voting and doing whatever possible to get those elements out of the system so that the opportunities that education can have are not uh, limited just by the parents, but you actually have other people with other experiences and other values that actually care about truly teaching children as opposed to the ideology, because that's how you kind of build, um, build better people. I mean, all of us on this panel, everybody in the chat, I'm sure you could probably name more than just one per influential person in your life. And when you're, you're stuck in a homeschool aspect, you, you're at risk of actually narrowing that, that possibility down. I mean, it's not a guarantee, of course, there's always exceptions to the rules. But it's like there, there's a reason the system worked a little bit 
fairly well for a while. And I think when certain other aspects came into play to distract parents from being able to be involved with their children, that's when we started to lose hold on on the direction of what's going and probably how one of the other many reasons why we got to this situation where you don't have education, you don't have teachers that are educating, you have basically arms of a person's propaganda or whatever, uh, trying to manipulate and influence your children. So yeah, it's definitely Marxist subversion of, of academia because there is value to to education and we, we need it. And I, I don't think the people that have been put in charge uh, of teaching our kids uh, are, are respecting that that responsibility anymore. I think their their whole the whole goal is to have the kids taught by the state because they've yeah. noticed that they also demonize any parent and belittle any parent who dares want to teach their own kids, like uh, as if they're out of line or overreaching or they they have no qualifications. Because the big movement now is qualifications, qualifications, qualifications. I kind of mentioned this, or I quite have noticed this, uh, is that we we used to have the idea of you having a degree, but your intelligence, your knowledge and wisdom on the subject matter justifies the, justifies your degree. Like, oh, you must have a degree on this. But now mm -hmm. we've shifted to where it's backwards. Now your degree justifies you being correct. Instead of you being correct, Earning uh, the degree. And exactly. then the other part, too, is you've also seen a huge d divide where, like, when I was a kid, it was the parents and the teachers kind of against me. Like, they worked together to make sure that I would live up to my potential. Right. And now it's not that way. You had at the point where the teachers were now subservient to the parents. And now at this point, it's the teachers are trying to circumvent the parents. And it, it it's just all over the place. There, there's no sense. It, it, it literally is getting into more of, like, state-controlled, narrowed, um, teaching as opposed to where it's like, oh, we just have, we have all this records of history and knowledge and we want to teach, you know, the, the language of the, of the country, math, um, science, uh, his, history, all that type of stuff as your basic foundation so that that child can take that information, explore uh, a path that is best for them and we will have avenues for them to do that. But now it's basically like, no, we're going to kind of narrow you down as early as possible and carry you on this direction. The, the, the choice of what you want to do or what your child wants to do is not in their hands anymore because we are the parents now. And that's that's what's kind of freaking me out. Right. And also, I was kind of tie this the same attitude towards uh, the mainstream attitude towards indie comic book creators, if you, especially with mm -hmm. Eric July being one of the the, 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 the the lightning rod for this kind of criticism in that where we the same the same idea of these art, these superficial things that becoming a shield for people with when they're you know for the experts quote unquote where the degree justifies your opinion instead of the your opinion justifying your degree now it's oh it's they're really trying to delegitimize eric, eric july's success they're saying well you don't have uh you're not published by a big time publisher uh, you don't have a press release like all these all these like superficial like um orbiting they don't things. mean anything i mean yeah exactly but like, it used to it used to be where the comic book was good therefore because it was good, you got you could do a press release because people were anticipating that the high quality comic that was produced or the entertainment comic that was produced. You were being published by a big time publisher because of the quality of the book. All, all these things that are kind of attached to legitimacy are only attached to legitimacy because they used to be things that developed from quality media or things people found enjoyable. So these things have like the stigma of legitimacy. But they don't just because you're you don't have those 
uh, the idea now is that if you don't have these, you're not legitimate. But the idea is that the legitimate book made these things. Legitimate book made these things feel like legitimacy. The, a legitimate book is one that is good and one that sells. And that's what Eric July has. But again, that's like the idea of the past. The current, the current mindset is uh, in order for a comic book to be legitimate, you have to have a press release. You have to be you know, published by this. You have to have professional people on the, the work. Like all these things that are just uh, symptoms of legitimate comic book. They kind of well, play actually, into actual of, legitimacy. No, you're, you're absolutely right. They're a byproduct of the success because, again, when action comics and, and detective comics and more fun comics all started out, they were in the same boat as Eric July at that time. They just put it out there. People bought it and they made money and they used that money to better advertise their works. And it was a slow grow uh, over time. But the reason they were able to grow is that not only did they just put the book out, they they sold it on the quality of, of the product as well. Eric July has spent a long time building up his brand. He got a lot of people to take a chance on him. It worked out favorably and fantastically. I've read his book a couple of times. I, I have it behind me signed. I enjoyed it. My favorite character is the kid on the farm. And, and I do have some criticisms for it, but they're not they're, they're not like superficial or petty criticisms. It's like, oh, I, I see some things here that I know, like, you know, a lot of uh, early writers and early careers make those mistakes. But the thing is, everything else around it is good. So I can excuse it. And I'm assuming that Erica probably knows those mistakes better than anyone else because they'll probably bug him in the back of his head. And he's going to work to fix those in subsequent issues and other stories. So and, and that's kind of what you want to see in the growth of a writer and creator with whether it be independent comics and i mean it's severely lacking in the mainstream but that's that's the progress that we we see and that's how you build your brand that's how you become your your big uh you know tentpole and quote-unquote legitimate uh business it it's a slow and steady race it doesn't happen overnight i mean they're trying to argue on the sense that he's invalid because the industry didn't validate him but he's he's is validated by the industry because the customers make the industry and exactly. they bought his book <laughs> excuse me uh, is there anything else you guys want to say on that one or should we check back in with the audience I check back in with the audience, with the audience. Check, good checking back in yeah Yeah. so uh, where were we Gear Stark says hail high council and happy new year happy new year to you too can we get a terminator bike shot please yeah of course um, I got this pulled up right here um, guys the motorcyclists, sorry, the motorcyclists here on this channel are never um, well received, and here is another example of why. Stop freezing. <laughs> Let's try this again. And he's still toast. That poor guy. Uh, up next, we have one from uh, SH Rebels 08, again, who says, Fistful of Tinkle, Tinkle in the Wind, and Tinkle in the Attic. Also, you get what you fucking deserve, motorcycle, please. Oh, sure. See what I mean about motorcyclists here on this channel? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Poor guy. Get what you fucking deserve! Uh, but, oh my gosh! 
I need a count, a kill count, folks. If you can give me a kill count on that motorcyclist, uh, first one to get me a kill count, uh, I don't know, wins a prize. Free t shirt. <laughs> Just bullshit it and I'll send you something. Maybe we should do a t shirt. <laughs> we should. One in the chat, if you want one of our first t shirts of the year to be the exploding motorcycle guy, because I will make that shirt. Fuck, I'll just make it no matter what. Let me write that down. Motorcycle. Guy. Shirt. I'm still glad I can write uh, as fast as I did in college. And just as legibly. Only for me. So, SA Troubles 08, thank you much, very much again. He says, Are you ready? Buffalo, and- oh, Buffalo, and- Buffalo Andrew, are you ready? No. Uh, WDW Pro had to go. He says, yippee, yes I am. I cannot wait to see Top Gun Maverick again. Hope you got the popcorn. Mm, yes. Troubles away. I am sorry. We did not get to see that a little earlier uh, so we can get Butters back. But you know what? WDW Pro is a friend of the channel, and uh, he'll definitely he be, be back, back on in the future. So don't worry, folks. We'll do a, a, a stream on a different day at an earlier time where we can get everybody on a lot longer as well. But this is an awesome way to start the new year. And, folks, I'd like to thank everyone who's been joining us so far. Do us a favor, though. We're going to be just as repetitive as last year. Hit that thumbs up button to let YouTube know that you like the content that we make. It's not for our egos. We don't want thumbs up and five stars to make us feel good and go home and tell our parents, look what the audience gave us. No. It's literally so this computer that operates this entire system goes, oh, people like this stuff. And you guys like this stuff. If you're here each and every week. You give us your time. You give us everything. So just give us one more thing, the thumbs up, and then that will give other people the opportunity to join the club. Have a good time. Hell, you'll make new friends in the process. So, folks, we're always going to ask you to do that. Hit that thumbs up button. You know what? It's kind of like when you walk into the bar and you, you know, you say hey to the bartender. Always hit that thumbs up when you come on in and do a live show and a video. We appreciate it. Thank you. Ah, speaking of someone else we appreciate, Enrique Vasquez says, Happy New Year, everyone. What an all-star panel tonight. You guys going to make my delivery night better. WDW Pro, uh, did Hank Hill see Avatar? Number 35, please. Well, Enrique, I'm sorry that Hank Hill um, cannot be voiced by WDW Pro, and I will not embarrass you with my Hank Hill. I'll just go, Whoa. But I will give you a number 35. <laughs> You're an that fucking object! It's great. Folks, um, for In Bruges, uh, if you want to see that clip, that is In Bruges. Great movie. I really like In Bruges. Yeah, that is a really good movie. Did you see the, was it the Banshees of Inishirin, the new one that the guy put out this year? No, I don't think so. It's funnier than I thought it was going to be. It's like this weird dark comedy, and I mean dark as shit. Um, I won't spoil any of it. But it's, it gets gory at the end. You'll be surprised. Uh, Dixon Cider, what is up? He says, welcome back, guys. Hope Dion enjoyed his Christmas present. Party boob! And a random button, please. Dixon Cider, I have great news. Dion got the gift this week on the show. I will make sure we turn on the cameras and you can see that. Because I took it up there and his nephew goes, what is this? And then his kid goes, oh, what is this? And then he goes, wow, what the fuck? And so (laughs) you'll have to uh, join us this Thursday night on the podcast, folks, and we will let you uh, see that. But uh, Dixon Cider, thank you for the warm welcome back, and here is your random button.
Agreed. It's true. It's not easy being green, though. Shrubbles await. Jeff, could you make Matt G a wrench? Well, Matt G, do you want to be a wrench? You're here every week. Uh, You're dependable. I see, you know, a handful of mods in the chat, but it always helps to have more as our channel keeps growing. We're over 175K, so thank you and welcome to all the new listeners. Uh, Yeah, Matt G, if you're in the chat and you would like a wrench, I think you have earned one. So just say yes or no. I won't take it personally, but uh, let me know either way. Jun Wong, thank you very much. Whoa, century eggs are delicious, okay? Mmm, lie cured. I have never eaten those because I don't eat food that is, like, black. Like, it's like, oh, an egg. Are you racist? Yeah, of course. (laughs) People, it's a delicacy, but I'm pretty sure someone like uh, Brie Larson probably wouldn't like it too much. Because she smells like them? Probably. Also, I don't. I really. I don't really take her as the cultured type. <laughs> the type who just who would love like these uh, exquisite uh, delicacies from other countries and cultures. You're telling me Brie Larson's more like a chicken McNuggets girl? Probably. I was gonna say like McDonald's or something. What a weird day to like eat McDonald's with Brie Larson in a Nissan. It's just a marketing nightmare. Don't make it happen. Uh, thank you, Jude Wong, though. Uh, Jack White says, Jeff, I just sent you an email with links to an anime article and trailers for a new anime and fun fact, Whitebeard from One Piece is modeled after Hulk Hogan. I believe I heard that somewhere. I do have One Piece behind me, chapters 1 through 24, sorry, volumes 1 through 24, so thank you uh, if that is you who sent it, or a listener named Wheezy Bird, uh, one of you guys. Nobody ever sent their name. But um, I will check the email and uh, read all that stuff. Thank you, Jack White. TLJ Screwjob says, not powerful Justice League? Then why the fuck should we care? I don't know. I don't know. Rod Thunderheart, that's a cool name, says, Hail WCBS, still not convinced WDW Pro isn't John Cena. Well, You never know. You can't Considering see him either you way. Can't, yep, you beat me to it. Look, I'm sorry <laughs> I stole your joke, but it's John fine. Cena has caused me enough pain that I will jump the gun. Because that motherfucker owes me. Uh, it's, I feel kind of bad, though. He came back to wrestling over the weekend, and all people can talk about is his bald spot. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> all right. Bro, That's... you can afford some freaking hair plugs or Oh, he, he has hair, hair plugs. Stuff. Oh, does he really? Yeah, like... Well, I he, has a, he has a hair plugs and a toupee. He's had it for a few years now, at least. Yeah. What the it, shit? Oh, yeah. Cena wears a hair piece. <clears throat> I, Men typically start to go bald between the early 20s and mid to late 30s. So if you pass that 38-year part and you still have your hair, you're probably going to have your hair for the rest of your life. Maybe a slightly receded hairline, but most likely it'll still be there. Well, I'm sorry that John Cena has not uh, received that. Or time hasn't been as kind to John Cena as it has other people. Um, hey, we got Robot Shlomo in the chat. What up, Rob? How you doing out there tonight, buddy? Uh, Rod Thunderheart, though, thank you. TLJ Screwjob says, feel bad for the actor replacing Henry Cavill. Bias against. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, even if they get, like, a nice schmuck, it's just, like, with with Henry, they just had, they had the full package. He's a legitimate geek. He wanted to do right by the character, wanted to do right by the fans. He looks the part perfectly. What What... And he can act. So it's like there's there's literally no loss there. 
I think if there's enough time that's passed and the Superman movie looks good from the first appearance, I think they'll have a much easier chance. But if they're trying to do a modern subversive take where it's going to be some hipster Superman bullshit and to, you know, to look different, then they're fucked. And then oh, if they go the Max Landis Superman American Alien route, that would be detrimental to the franchise. Yes. But I don't think they're going to do, though. The only the only uh, story I've seen James Gunn comment on that was kind of more recent is the um, Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne Batman and Robin title. Um, and oh, okay. everything else he's been referencing has been pre-2000. So hopefully that's that's where he's going with his his direction, because I, I think that's a smarter smarter route. There's better stories in the past that can be adapted adapted for um for a new franchise than trying to you know sponge off the the new 52, the Tomorrowverse, the Rebirth, all that stuff. It, it's it's garbage. Well, that's why I personally always harp on why modern comics need to be good because I know a lot of the audience goes well, or not our audience but a lot of people go oh we don't care about the comic books or this or that it's the merchandise or this you know and that'll sell it's like yeah but eventually we reach the point where we have to adapt the modern comics so for as much as I love Batman if they keep making shit Batman comics eventually they'll run out of the movies to where they have to go well now we have to adapt where Batman gets stood up at the altar by Catwoman like that's gonna happen so the the books are equally important because it's just going to dictate what the movies pull from in the future. And we're most people like any, a person that listens to this show could have been alive for the entirety of the superhero film. You know, we could have a listener that saw Batman 1967 in the theaters and is still alive today. We actually have a lot of older listeners, which is cool. We're so early in the genre. Hell, we'll just use my lifetime. I only wasn't alive for the Christopher Reeve Superman run, but Michael Keaton on has been, you know, that's my my lifetime. But we're so early on in the genre that and we've adapted so much so quickly, and there's no way these things are going to go away because there are modern myth, there are modern characters, there are these, these big corporations' faces that they've spent billions of dollars on to acquire. They're not going away anytime soon until they have been milked completely dry. But again, to reiterate, you got to treat them on every front as equally as important as the merchandise or whatever big budget movie you're trying to gain uh, favor for in the press. Every aspect has to work because the brand isn't just one aspect. It's every aspect. Look at Star Wars. It wasn't just the movies and the toys. It was those damn books. What turned off millions of people from the Disney stuff? The expanded universe being jettisoned. That's a problem. That was part of the brand that wasn't paid attention to. Marvel is doing the same, or excuse me, all comic books are doing the same thing. Yeah, that is my soapbox moment. Thank you for watching. Um, TLJ Screwjob, though, thank you very much. Rod Thunderheart says, Hail WCBS, I agree. Rip the Band-Aid off. Junk the Flash. They have ruined Shazam 2 as well. And now, the final word, because that's the word of Rod. Well, Rod, thank you for joining us and sharing the word of Rod with us <laughs> this evening. Um, we are enlightened, my friend. What happened with Shazam 2? Did I miss some kind of uh, press event over Christmas break? No, as far as I know, the movie's still happening. It's just we don't know if anything from the Shazam movies is being carried forward. You know, at this point, it's looking more and more like, you know, Peter Safran and Gunn are just, you know, throwing out everything that came before with both hands. Um and 
you know, people enjoyed Shazam. I enjoyed it. Oh yeah, the first movie. one I thought was pretty good. Uh, it was it was sure. a it was a fairly self contained story. It was done well. It made you care about the characters, and that's really all you have to do. With it was the more coherent movie. than Black Adam. Yeah, um, was that hard to do? Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I got, mean, the other part too is <laughs> okay. So here's the Hollywood perspective of things uh, from from a writer. Um, Sometimes you can be, you could know there's a show or the property that you want to work on. And then you see that the people who are writing it are doing it bad, but you tolerate it because it's a job opportunity and you get involved and you write within the parameters of, of the, the people overseeing that property. And you just kind of do the best you can. And that's kind of what James Gunn has done. That's what Peter Safran has done because he's the one who's produced the Shazam films. Uh, and I think he also worked on Aquaman. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like, a bittersweet aspect yes we get to work with these characters but oh darn we have this we have these rules that we know don't quite fit with the the reality of these characters or what best exploits these characters but we just got to kind of do our best to work within them and now all of a sudden the two guys that have had to do that are in charge and they're like okay do we hold on to the old rules that we don't didn't like or do we do what we are supposed to do throw at everything and try something that fits more in our realm the way that the previous stewards did the first first place so i that's why i'm of the mind because again this happens in hollywood all the time anytime a new head comes in into a studio they throw everything that was in development or on the docket out uh if they can get away with it and start fresh because they want their stamp on the ips that they that they have in their um, vault they don't want the previous regime to have anything lingering on afterwards because it's just going to negatively impact what they're doing. Now, that does not mean that what could happen is going to be automatically superior. It ju it's just going to be different, and it's up to the audience to determine if that's popular or not. So that's why I'm suspecting, leaning more onto the side that everything is going to be gone. Sure, there's probably going to be actors that are going to be back, but not as the characters they were initially cast. I mean, I have a theory in the back of my mind that if James Gunn ends up directing Superman as as well as writing it, he's probably going to have his wife, Jennifer Holland, be Cat Grant at the Daily Planet. Oh, good. Nepotism. Well, I mean, it's also a minor supporting character, and Jennifer Holland, I, I've worked with her kind of in passing on one of the American Pie films uh, that was shooting in Canada at the time, and um, she, she's a good professional actor. Like, But yes, I mean, James Gunn is known for doing that i mean his brothers in the guardian of the galaxy films, oh so. yeah sean yeah but the other part too is he doesn't put them front and center they're they're in their uh, supporting characters or he's having fun with them so i mean that's Look. one thing that's you can kind of appreciate sure he's handing some work out to friends and family but he's not putting them into something beyond their capabilities i i agree i have no issue with the way he handles it and i have no issue with the way sam raimi handles it i like to see ted raimi pop up i that's a highlight yeah. like when i watch spider-man 2 hoffman is he steals the show especially in part three because three sucks the daily bugle <laughs> stuff is just say there's not amazing. much of a show to steal no well it's still <laughs> ted raimi so remember that but um i guess when i think of the nepotism that truly bothers me it's rob zombie and his fucking wife Sherry Moon Zombie is not a talented actress. She's competent in the first two movies, but like when she starts playing Michael Myers' mother, or was it The Witches of Salem and uh, Lily or Munster, or The Wife and the Munsters? Yeah, <laughs> like, come on, Sherry Moon Zombie. That that's that's where I go. Don't put your wife in another movie, bro. Just stop. 
stop. Like, put her in music videos and other crap. That's fine. Just, she can't act. She can't even play a stripper convincingly. Wow. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had to say that. Jeez. I'm just being honest, man. Now uh, I believe you. I, I don't question your sincerity at all. TLJ Screwjob with, with the comment of the night. At this rate, Batman will be tonally darker than Dion. <clears throat> Damn. That's accurate. I mean, that that's another thing. We don't know what they're going to do in terms of, you know, any swapping that they'll do around with the castings, which seems like an expected inevitability at this point with uh, with a lot of these castings. I, 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 I see I see access media sites constantly posting who could play this character next. And like half of them will be just like the complete opposite ethnicity of what the character actually is. And I'm like, are you guys freaking serious right now? You know, there's like a billion other characters that those, those actors could play too. Right. There's, there's no money in the race swaps and without a strong brand, a meaning you're restarting fresh with DC, I know people would counter with, well, they're going to build for the next generation with the new version. That never works when you radically change it because the audience checks out quickly because it's an established thing. I say DC goes conservative and goes very traditional casting to get people hooked. I would I'd hope you, so. I just I, want I think them to you do an icon it. movie because I liked that 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 Sure, with do icon. icon. I was really blown away by it as that. a kid. Um, cause I'm like, oh, you got this really old dude who's kind of like Superman, but not, and he's mentoring this young girl who wants to be a writer and, um, she's made her mistake. I, I just, I just dug it cause it was different, but it didn't feel like it was, um, leaning into the stereotypes that one would associate with, with like, you know, the Dakota city and the whole politics there in the late nineties. Um, but yeah, like I would love to see an icon movie that give me that instead of, you know. I mean, it's not happening, but Tony C.C. Coates' uh, Superman thing, that's not happening. But give me that instead of... Do we know that that's not happening? Because they haven't said that it's not, at least insofar as I'm aware. Well, the pattern of behavior at Warner Brothers right now is that everything J.J. has has pitched has been rejected. Good. And um, I'm, I'm, I've, I have asked a couple of people I know who are beheading over to Burbank in the next few weeks to see if they can find where J.J.'s parking spot is because if it's in a certain lot, that means he's pretty much on his way out the door. Um because that's what all the studios do you get your private if you're got contracts with them they they tell you this is where you're going to park and if it's close to certain offices you're in the good zone and if it's moved the spot parking spot is moved somewhere you're you're on thin ice and you got to get yourself in gear or else you're going to be kicked out and um and the other part too is jj abrams is very much a good sales person not good at making product but he's good at selling stuff so he knows how to navigate uh this world uh, th this world so if James Gunn saying, yeah, we're going to make a Superman. J.J. Abrams is going to have someone in his team go to the trades and be like, yes, and our thing is still in the works too, trying to maintain um, trade interest so that when he goes to Zaslav or other people, it's like, see, the, the trades are still talking about it, so they, they know there's an interest. It's like, no, they're, that's that's him just planting his own story. That's what you know Dick Cheney did with the WMDs in Iraq back in the day, like you know, leaked it to the news and then cited the news that he leaked on the other news to justify it. Just, that's what J.J. is doing. Well, I will not miss J.J. Abrams. His contributions to geek culture or genre entertainment, I would say, left us worse off than he found us. Guys like I, I him, think it was a net loss, yeah. 
him and Lindelof and a few other guys that always had their <laughs> names involved with the stuff for decades or so. We're, we were always just kind Isn't of Lindelof for them to doing go away. A, uh, a Star Wars film? Everyone's doing a Star Wars film. I got an announcement to make, folks. I'm doing a Star Wars oh, film. Oh, shit. It's the young... Uh, who who we adapted? Sorry, can I say? Oh, I can say. Okay, we're doing the young Dengar film. It's about his <laughs> early high school days where he fell in love with Princess Leia's uh, bartender. Yeah, it's, just, it's a dumb movie, but you know what? We're going to do it right. It's for the kids. It's great. It's about love and loss and Dengar, a Star Wars story. And there it ends know, with see? a speeder accident by, that was caused by Han Solo. <laughs> exactly. And it, I, so, spoiler alert, we've already shot part of it. It ends with freeze frames. Have you guys ever seen the film Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Oh, yeah. You know how it says, like, Brad Hamilton was uh, promoted to manager of the whatever. Same with Animal House and all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's how this movie ends. So, you know, it shows, like, Dengar explode, and it goes, Dengar will return eventually to get revenge on Han Solo that he'll never achieve. And then it freezes on Han Solo, and it talks about his achievements. Like, we're really going for something modern and different this time, because we've really screwed the pooch every time. They've never done it right, so we're here to do it the right way. That would be my pitch. And I It still already think sounds like a better Rise of Skywalker. Well, it already sounds like a better Star Wars story than the sequel trilogy, so shit. Why not? Yeah, sign me up. Um, not, I really don't want to work there, but uh, just, let's just not even live in that world. All right, Matchy, you're a mod. <laughs> uh, got a few more tonight, and then we're uh, going to see where we are with the show. Uh, by the way, Jack White, I am waiting for Kendo to shoot me that email because I... Uh, really don't do the show's email that's a kendo thing and so i am uh all right cool i got it so tlj screwjob says look at dad who is made to look deranged by media when he found out his daughter was draped by a boy wearing a skirt and the school board covered it up i have not heard of that story so that is one that's news to me um up next we had another one from our friend jack white who said uh, Jeff, I just sent you an email with a response about the educational system. Would you appreciate it if you could read it? Uh, okay, and Jack had said, uh, the problem is that it was designed by overachievers who do well in those types of systems, i.e. sitting at a desk to study a book or a packet that works for them. Not everyone is like that. I can personally speak as someone with learning disability. How we educate needs to change and has for a long time. Hmm. I... Yeah, Education has morphed into something that is less accessible and more specific. So, yeah, I, I agree with, with that, with him. I was just going to say, I haven't been in the education system in about nine years, and I have forgotten a lot. I didn't forget the stuff I was taught, just the, the system itself. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting close to 20 years, but luckily I have godchildren that are actually just graduating high school over the next couple of years. So I've, I've had a taste of it because I talk to them kind of regularly. And, uh, yeah, they... They complain <laughs> because they, they're the ones that have literally seen like, oh, yeah, educate primary school up until early parts of high school was fine. And then the latter years of high school has gone into this whole stuff that they've actually called out as indoctrination. And it's kind of funny when I my, some of my best friends, they call me and they're like, yeah, my kid just quoted you <laughs> to their teacher and got his, and got suspended for a week because of it. Oh, <laughs> good. good on that. Uh, so I think, let me just see if we're all caught up. Matt G. Oh, no, we're not. We have a couple actually. Uh, Matt G just said, thank you. Thank you, Matt. Aurora Uplinks. What is up? Aurora Uplinks had a few messages. Thank you. Aurora says, just talking Star Wars books in chat, uh, or Truce at Bakura. I know that title. Uh, I've never read it, but have you guys heard of Truce at Bakura? Uh, I'm not as familiar. I don't believe so. That's not ringing any bells. 
So it my is... my focus when it comes to uh, the EU is almost strictly the old Republic era. That's I'm my gonna... area of expertise. This is my type of Star Wars book. It's a 1993 spin-off novel by Kathy Tyler's. It takes place immediately after the events depicted in Return of the Jedi and before those of the younger reader series Jedi Prince. So I, as a kid, I would read some Star Wars books. All I wanted was the continued adventures of Han, Luke, and Leia. I didn't care about the kids. I didn't care about really anything. It was just knowing that Han, Luke, and Leia were still this thing and they were fighting other bad guys out in the galaxy was perfect that was enough for me so i'm gonna get myself a copy of this maybe i uh, use my audible credit or something and listen to it when i'm working on Hulkbusters. right on uh Aurora uplinks thank you very much again says great thing about books is it can explore great ideas and help plan out ideas to adapt into movies and games later like fleet maneuvers or new species i agree i i, I will go back to my comment about each portion of the brand needs to be treated with value um and that's where you can draw a lot of <clears throat> unique ideas from. I will say that that mentality, though, can be a slippery slope. You see these days that just about everything that gets pumped out into the mainstream and the major indies and comic books looks and reads like they're just trying to pitch a Netflix special. and They don't actually give a shit about the, the medium. They don't give a shit about comics. Um, and then they'll, you know, they'll sell off the the licensing rights for a, a season or two of a, a Netflix special just to make a quick couple of grand and it's shit. Nobody likes it because it's shit. And then it's dead. Mm-hmm. Aurora said also, why did Iger complain about Lucas not having movies in production when buying it? Yet Lucas had TV shows and games in production. Why did Iger cancel them? Hmm. Interesting. Why did I, why did, why did, Disney throw out the EU because they didn't want to play in somebody else's sandbox. Now, to be fair, and I'm going to I'm gonna risk catching a little heat for this, but I'm going to do it anyway because fuck it, we'll do it live. <laughs> that sandbox was, yes, predicated on the rules that George established. His universe, his baby, his creation. However, a lot of that, the expansion, while he may have, like, he nodded at this, he nodded at that, he took things and implemented them in future future projects, a lot of that was a credit to the writers who actually wrote those books. Like, a lot of people forget that, and a lot of people don't give enough credence and enough uh, weight to those writers who added so much to the star wars universe that we actual star wars fans love so it, it was george's baby but it was also the product of a lot of other writers who contributed to that and that that collective there that beautiful thing there's some crap in the eu too but there's a lot of gold and that sandbox was something that disney had no desire to play in they didn't want to play with within the established rules of the universe that was there already. And so they said, fuck it. We'll throw the whole bitch out, both hands. Um, and we'll start, not quite from scratch, but they were like, we'll just go with what the movies did and with uh, Clone Wars at the time. Um, and so that way they had less to uh, less to catch up on. Honestly, it was lazy. 
It was laziness. It was both hubris and laziness, I would say. It was hubris on the part of Disney Lucasfilm where they wanted to interject their own stories. They didn't want to have to work with the characters and the stories that had already come before and were presented and established and have to develop stories that took those things into account. And they also just wanted to be like, this is ours. This is this is our story. This is how we say Luke, Han, and Leia proceeded after Return of the Jedi. Well said. So, uh, Andrew, is there anything else we really need to cover before we uh, put this first episode of the year to bed? I think this was a pretty rock-solid kickoff to the new year. I agree, and I uh, will be uploading this, folks. This is something I wanted to announce at the beginning of this show, is I'm going to start uploading this to the WCBS uh, podcast stream. So for those who like to listen to stuff streaming or on the go, for those who don't listen to this show, but only through that app, uh, well, here's some new entertainment for you. And also, too, for those who like our clips and stuff, I do have a couple clips and stuff planned from this episode as well, as well as a lot of new videos. We know you love the toy videos. I have found a lot of... um, content and it's not just hey look at the shelves each one of these tells a new interesting story each one tells um a continuation of what we've been talking about on this channel for years and so we're the first ones to do the star wars stuff we've been following the marvel be prepared because we're following uh, we're seeing a new character a new trend and a new problem arise not only for marvel but disney as a whole so, folks, be on the lookout for that. I'll probably have that up tomorrow, Thursday at the latest. And join us on Thursday for the podcast because it's going to be a fun night. It's the first show of 2023. We're going to be having fun. We're going to be talking about our New Year's and a whole lot more, including what we have planned for this year. Aurora Uplinks, thank you very much again. Instead of profiting from Star Wars EU, they died by it. Yeah, <laughs> they did. They were the architect of their own demise. And it's hard to have anything... But schadenfreude when it comes to Disney, because they did it to themselves. They bought stuff so quickly and treated it so willy-nilly to get out a product that wasn't very good. And only a few short years, they've tarnished multiple brands, and they're on their way out with another one. I can't imagine another studio taking the Golden Goose and uh, throwing it off the bridge and just destroying it. So... Uh, White Knight, it's not an excessive amount of Baby Yodas. That is not the narrative. I've already seen an excessive amount of Baby Yodas. Uh, pallets full at stores that did not sell. Uh, both releases were available off the clearance rack. So I have already cracked that story. I've already told that one. This is something new, different. Again, you don't find this content on other channels. Uh, and that's what we're going to have for you in a couple of days. Um, Literature Devil, is there anything you'd like to say before we put this baby to bed? Oh yeah, I still have my uh, my newest comic book, Doctor Alpha Dead Man's Lullaby Volume One, is on Indiegogo. Still available. We're we're, we're currently in in demand. We did make the uh, the goal. Congratulations! Yes. So I managed to make cross that line, but uh, we, we're still looking to break even. Essentially, I you know the the original goal was I can use that money to get funded and produce the book, but uh, at thirty thousand, that's when we kind of started breaking even with all the costs and everything. So we're at 28000 now, so we're kind of getting there. Also, I got my bad guy card recently from Indiegogo, which means I got Shadow Banned. So you can't actually find it. You have to go. You oh, have to excellent. Go, you have to do a direct link to the campaign. Oh, it's the only great. way to get There's, it. So that platform's causing you trouble, too? Oh, yeah, they've been Shadow Banning a lot of creators that Did don't fit I, the narrative. 
yeah, I'm one of them because I, with Tits and Art, it took me two months for them to finally pay. I had to get like a lot of people involved behind the scenes for Indiegogo to even respond. Um, I made that announcement publicly a few weeks ago, folks. Uh, so I'm sorry that they're giving you problems too, dude. Um, well, if the unfortunately, I didn't have the... any trouble getting the money. They 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 sent it to me, I believe, uh, which is good. So I've started paying my artists so we can continue on with the book. And we should have uh, we're working on the layouts of page twenty six to thirty one right now. But yeah, I, I guess you have also encountered the whole thing of yeah. They're, they're, if you don't fit with the narrative. Uh, you, they will shadow ban you or give you some sort of problem. So even Indiegogo has fallen. Is not, and, and the thing is, they got rid of their old staff, apparently. According to what I've heard from others, they got rid of their old staff. They were very, very responsive, that were very helpful. And now they just uh, they wallow in silence and uh, arrogance and just kind of shadow ban you because they don't like you. No warning, no no reason given, no anything. Just You're just shadow banned. You won't even know it until you you yourself look into it. But doesn't that also hurt their potential profits? Because don't they take a little bit of ideologues don't care? Oh well, yeah, I know. <laughs> ideologues have proven for several years now they care not for profit, and, and only so, the message. And Indiegogo is so big they don't mind losing on uh, on that money. They just don't. It's like ah, oh, you're you're they, basically they don't respect you because you don't you don't bring in enough, and they don't like you. And if, and if that's both the things, then boom, you're shadow banned. And they take, yeah, they take a lot of money. They take a reasonable amount of money, especially if they're shadow banning you. They're taking like $2,500 away from my campaign uh, for platform fees and stuff like that. So, yeah, they take a, a reasonable amount of money just to shadow ban you. Yep. Um, script Doctor, is there anything you'd like to say before we put this baby to bed? Um, uh, other than thank you so much for having me on tonight, uh, as part of this, the start of the new year, um, and, uh, as a weird set of requests that I've been getting over the last month or so by email and Twitter DMS, uh, I've launched a Patreon where I'm going to be reviewing screenplays, um, that have been circulating Hollywood for the past year. And some of the stuff that's coming, um, being put into production and being released on television and, uh, theater this year. And, uh, let people who are interested in know this kind of actual state of uh the writing level in hollywood right now that's getting picked up and it, it's mostly like an educational part as well but it's also to help circumvent the fact that i was trying to put out a couple of videos in december and youtube's algorithm and content id uh program have been knocking out uh blocking my videos before they can even go up based on still photos and even modified assets so it's been really weird there. So I decided just to circumvent that with Patreon and, and the money from the Patreon is going to go towards a, a project that I'll hopefully be able to launch next year um, and, and do it quickly for, for everybody. So that that's what it's there for. So feel free to um, to sign up for that if you're interested. It's uh, patreon.com slash the script doctor and uh, follow me on Twitter for see where I'll be. And that that's pretty much my my shtick right now. Andrew, what about you, my YouTube friend? Stuff sorted out. <laughs> um, well, I don't have anything big myself other than I have a project coming up. It's a video project with um, Pro. Ooh. We'll be recording uh, in a couple days here, so Thursday. I won't say anything more on that as it is for his channel. I, I hope you guys um, are subscribing to his new channel he just launched that the on uh it was on new year's i believe is when he launched that um 
Matt or any of the other mods, if you could drop the link to that in the chat. Uh, we want to see how quickly we can get him to that monetization sweet spot. And uh, he's cranking out videos, so I don't have anything to really promote for myself. So instead, I will promote for WDW Pro, who is uh, no longer here on the panel tonight. Um, so yeah, guys, check his check his channel out. He's already got a few videos up there. He's very thorough with what he presents there. Absolutely worth the watch. Folks, I will close it out with uh, make sure you're obviously subscribed to WCVS. You're here, so you are. Uh, go over to our titsandart.com or wokebusters.com and get yourself a copy of um, one of our projects. Uh, Tits and Art will be shipping out. Uh, I'll make the announcement on Indiegogo tomorrow, but I'll make the announcement here early for everyone who listens. So since Indiegogo screwed up everything and caused a delay, which wasn't my fault, uh, what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to sign everybody's book. And for those who backed at the tier for the autograph, I'm going to personalize your signature in a very special way to you. So, folks, uh, thank you for backing the campaign. Go to the Indiegogo, see what happened, what's up with that. But uh, be on the lookout for that update. And remember, uh, Tits and Art is going to be on its way to you in the next couple of days. And then you'll have the books, and we'll... Uh, We'll move on to the Book of Booty, maybe. Some other stuff like that we've talked about. Hugh Jeffner will come back. We'll actually tell you more about Tits and Art when those get shipped out. But in the meantime, folks, be on the lookout for more world-class bullshitters content. Follow us here on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and more. Uh, just Google world-class bullshitters or look for our link tree. You can find us everywhere because we are everywhere. We've been around for a minute, and we're just getting started. So in the meantime, folks, thank you for watching. Be smart. Be safe, be cool, but always be excellent to each other.